that's one thing I will say about ball pythons. As much as the animal themselves, I'm not impressed with them. Because they exist, all of this stuff exists. You know, these racks, the thermosets, they all exist because there was money to be made. And let's be honest, it was in ball pythons. Mm-hmm. They, those those snakes moved our our hobby forward more than anything else. Welcome to From the Ground Up, where we talk to reptile keepers and breeders about all things cold-blooded. Sit back and have a beer with us. Well, some of you are driving. If you're driving, keep your hands tended to and enjoy the show. From the Ground Up podcast. Thank you all so much for being here. So this week weird wednesday episode going on here but i've been a little sick i've been super busy melissa's out babysitting making money making moves and she's had a lot of school work to do so we're kind of off schedule but we're gonna get one in this week for sure and we do have some animals available poorcitypythons.com as well as we have some others that should be going up on the website soon our next show is going to be tinley park chicago and I have no idea what date that is, but I believe it's in two weeks. I'm sure James will let us know when he comes on. He probably has it memorized more so than I do. That's just kind of where on a random Thursday, Melissa and Matt tell me to get in a car and then we drive to Chicago. So I just do what I'm told. It's coming soon, though. I know that for sure. And I'm super pumped about it. So if you guys are going to Tinley, if you plan to go to Tinley, if you want to go to Tinley, go. And uh, yeah, say what's up. I guess we'll have a table so I won't be walking around as much, but I'll probably get away. Melissa hates when I walk away because when I walk away from the table, I'm gone for like an hour. And that's not even that's not even an exaggeration. I go to the bathroom and then I stop at a table and I talk to someone for like an hour. But she's not here to hear that. and She won't play that back. But that's pretty much how it goes down every time. So that's why she doesn't let me leave the table. But uh, or you could at least we can hang out at Bananas after if no one's ever been to Tinley Bananas is the bar. And uh, so, like I mentioned before, James Lewis, Simply Serpents, he works with uh, BCI Boas as well as Sam Boas. I believe he has some other stuff, too, but I'm sure he will tell you about it. He is also going to Tinley Park. So, James, welcome to the podcast, the real podcast this time. Yeah, the other ones were warm ups. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So you guys may know James for we had him on for the 15 minutes uh, ground bites on Facebook, which we've been slacking on as well. But so, James, how did you first get into reptiles? It's like everybody else. I mean, you know, there's always a picture everybody has of when they're like nine with a giant snake around their neck. And I know that's floating somewhere around my parents' house. And then I grew up when Animal Planet was good and had Crocodile Hunter. You know, I looked forward to Croc Week every week. I got the uh, you know blank cassettes, and I'd record every night of Croc Week. So I still have them on cassette somewhere. Um, and so reptiles were awesome. I owned a, I'm gonna call it a red tail. Everybody would get mad at you and tell it's not a red tail, but a BCI. When I was in like first grade, and we kept it until third grade until it got too big and we got rid of it. And I didn't own another snake until. I graduated high school my senior year. Right at the end of my senior year, I bought a rainbow boa that I actually still have. So he's 17 this year. And I I got into that really like that. For my whole life, I'd wanted to be a vet. So I was like, I'm going to be a vet. And then when I got my snake, I was like, I don't like dogs and cats that much. And so 
I decided that uh, I wanted to go to school for biology, become a zookeeper. And so I took my one snake with me and then, you know, slowly one snake turns into 40. Well, a few things on that is first, I think people think that they can become a vet and work with reptiles and amphibians or exotics in general. And it's not really sustainable in any form. Yeah. Yeah. I, I realized that I did not want to be like cutting off dog nuts for the rest of my life. That was not my <laughs> <That's> goal. <literally. laughs> so, I, I, and the odds of being a, a an exotics vet and just doing reptiles is slim to none. Um, and so I was like, zookeeping, that'd be awesome. I can go work with reptiles and just reptiles. And so I, I, when I entered college to get a degree in biology, that was my goal was to be a zookeeper. And a lot of people, I mean, they're really that first one doesn't kind of count because you were young and I'm sure your parents helped you out and stuff like that. But to have your first one to really be a rainbow boa. <laughs> that was a horrible is... <laughs> idea. It was one of those my parents saw there was a reptile expo in town. We went and it was really pretty. I was like, oh, this is awesome, and got limited knowledge on it, and then took it home. And then all the learning began. I mean, it went through some, it lasted 17 years and more. I mean, it's still, still alive, but it went through a lot of uh, trial and error. Right, right. And were you moving a lot during that time? Or are you typically in Louisiana? Well, no, I was in Alabama at the time. So oh. I was high school in Alabama, and then I took it to actually took it to college with me to live in the dorms in a Rubbermaid tote. And the problem was it kept getting mites. I couldn't stop it from getting mites. Um, I mean, I lived in the dorms. So there was, I, it's not the cleanest place. Um, So I finally had to send it back home with my parents and they had just moved from Alabama to Georgia. So I took over to Georgia and then uh, they were there for like a year and a half. Then they moved to Florida and took it to Florida. I mean, it it moved a lot. Um, And through that whole process, learning humidity, because I mean, that's a big issue. I became like, constantly attached to my computer so i could go on kingsnake.com and ask a million questions because i was that guy you know the guy that everybody gets annoyed with now how do you take care of yeah that that was me and uh i mean we went through a bunch of cages trying to figure out how to do humidity and what i've learned in 17 years of owning it is it's not as big a deal as people make it out to be like if you keep it just normal like i guess if i, I don't live in california or up north where it's super dry right so if you give it a humid hide and just check on it and make sure you spray it when it's going to shed, you're pretty good. Um, I found that babies tend to be the ones that are that suffer from a lack of humidity. So have you uh, have you gotten a uh, a pair of those now, or do you just still have the one? Yeah, no, I picked up an adult female back in oh oh six or oh seven in Daytona. Um, I bred them once way back in college, got a whole litter of them, and then. Uh, and then I didn't, I didn't, I've had them since then. I haven't bred them again until this year. I think she's pregnant. Actually, I take that back. I have bred them a couple of times and they didn't work out. It was a bunch of stillborns and stuff. And, um, but I think that was caging. I had her in a tub and I think she wanted more space. So now she's in a big four foot enclosure behind me and, uh, she seems better, but, uh, I did breed the first time I bred her. I think she had like 22 babies, 23 babies. Um, but then that was early on and I made stupid mistakes and, I may or may not have lost all those babies due to empty water bowls. So, yeah, it's 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 one of those things. Look, everybody has them, and not everybody's willing to share those bad stories. But it was one of those. You know, I went in, took out the water bowls to clean them. I left the room, and then just forgot to come back. And like I said, the younger rainbow boas, I mean, they they can dry out pretty quick. The big ones, I mean, they're they're gonna be okay. But uh, I came back. I think I think I missed a day in between. Came back into the room, and 
it happened. And so that's now why I come into my snake room multiple times a day. And every time I'm in there, I do something. And I just, I, I try and stay way more on top of it now. I mean, that's 17 years of learning that. That's crazy. Cause that's, this is like the second time I'm hearing that. Cause obviously Travis Wyman just a couple of guests ago was talking about, I think it was like egg eating snakes or something. And he left the water bowls, yeah. you know, dry up and they died, which is like, Damn, I guess I'm lucky I have animals that are so well, like, yeah, because like ball pythons and a, and a red tail or corn snakes, they're kind of forgiving, yeah. Um, but I mean, like I said, everybody has those stories. Like, some people won't share them because it makes they're afraid people will think badly of them, but everyone has them. I mean, you keep snakes long enough, you're gonna kill snakes, you know, and as long as you learn from it, you're good. Just don't repeat the same mistake, right? Right, yeah. Unfortunately, every year, you know, we produce a large amount of animals and certain things are just going to happen, man. And it's like, and you learn different hard lessons every single year. Like, especially when you get to a certain amount of animals, I couldn't even imagine what some people, you know, are dealing with. Yeah. One thought I hear people talk. I mean, I think I was up near 100 one year between babies and adults. And that was too much. It was just at the time it was too much for me. Now I think now with what, the way my snake room is and the improvements that I've made, I could do a hundred, but I couldn't do it then. I mean, it was, it was tough. Yeah. So I guess rewind a little bit. So you did biology in college and then kind of where'd you yeah. go from there? So I, I did biology in college. Then I applied to every zoo in the Southeast. Um, and the Alexandria zoo in Louisiana was the one that got back to me. And I took the job and moved out in 07 to Louisiana for the first time. And uh, I worked there for about two and a half years. And as every other person you've had on that's been a zookeeper tells you, the pay is not great. And and so you can only do it for so long. Um, so I had to end up leaving it. But I loved it while I was there. I mean, I worked with uh, your local venomous, but then we also had like a big gaboon viper. And I worked with several crocodilian species, which was awesome. So that's the kind of things I miss. I don't get to do that now. So I miss working with alligators and Nile crocs and stuff like that. Yeah. So did you have like a mentor there or were you kind of thrown in there? When I came there, the director of that zoo was an amazing person. Um, he actually, uh, oh, who was it on? Who's the one that's doing the uh, reptile thing in Arkansas? Um, y'all had him on. Oh, um, wow. Why is that escaping me? I know. That's, my brain just went blank. But he used friends with my, my director who was a director for a long time. And so I learned a lot from him in the short time I had him, had him Randall there. Barry. Sorry. Randall Barry. Yeah. <laughs> I knew it was a beat took way too long, but, um, uh, and the, my director's name was Les Witt and he was an awesome guy. I mean, had done a ton. His animal knowledge was great. He was kind of a, a self-made kind of guy. Um, I mean, he played, uh, organ. He knew, BB uh, King. He played with BB King. He was friends with Jack Hanna. Um, and a lot was, it was really great. And the problem was, um, he'd had a heart transplant, uh, several years prior to me meeting him. Um, and unfortunately at about two and a half years after I met him, right before I quit, uh, he passed away and that's, that was hard on all of us. But while I was there, he was the guy that kind of leaned on to learn from, but a lot of it was, all right, here you go. Do this. Um, now, I will rewind. While in college, I did intern at the Montgomery Zoo in Alabama. So um, I would drive up there a couple of days a week and intern there with their reptile guy and, and help out at that zoo. So I did have a little bit of experience. But I mean, a so lot you of were, 
you were always able to kind of stick to reptiles though. You didn't get stuck anywhere else. No, I mean, I mean, I worked some other things. If someone was absent, someone wasn't there that day. But yeah, I was I was reptiles, fish, and amphibians. Um, it was awesome. I mean, there. That's one thing I miss the experiences that I had, and that's zookeeping is an awesome job. Just it's hard to be a family and afford it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely. So, what kind of made your decision there to get out? I mean, besides the money my director died and then the atmosphere changed. It was a, it was a very family friendly atmosphere when I was there. I'm not saying what family friendly when I left, it just, he was kind of my buffer between some of the other politics working there. And I just, I wasn't happy anymore there. Um, the work and was so work was so great. It was the politics side that I was not happy about. And it seems like it, it's such a big advantage to have someone who you respect so much and be able to be like a wealth of knowledge. And then that's taken away from you. And then I bet you're like, what the hell am I doing? Yeah, I mean, it was it was rough. And, you know, it, it was really rough because we all we all went to work one day and then they called us into the break room and said, hey, he passed away. And then, that day, like no work got done. We fed animals and then sat around the rest of the day. I mean, it's it's hard. I mean, he was he was an amazing person. And the stories you hear about him, you can't get away with what he did back then today. But <laughs> it's it's crazy. Some of the stories. So, I mean, just hearing a lot of the stories of the old school guys, it seems like they really came through and into the profession, like more so in just a, I don't know. They just always did it and figured it out. They don't necessarily have degrees and stuff like that. Les was one of those, like, so the zoo, when he, when he came, he actually came with a group that came to look at the zoo and talk about shutting it down. And so when he came here, he said, look, don't shut it down, put me in charge. And they put him in charge. And I mean, he tore down most of the zoo. It was very old, like the way you think of zoo from the 1930s. It was still that kind of setup when he got here in the 80s and 70s. And um, and so he started tearing stuff down. I mean, there was a story one weekend on Friday. He got a letter from downtown because it was a city-owned zoo. It said, hey, Mr. Witt, do not destroy any more exhibits. So he, he sealed that shut and then went back out in that weekend and tore down all the exhibits he wanted to tore down and came back in and said, oh, I didn't get that letter. My bad. <laughs> Um, I mean, he also, another great story was that he wanted a, he went to his boss and said, Hey, I need, I think it was like $2,000 for a, a macaw for a blue and gold macaw at the time when they were expensive. And he goes, and he talked him into it and talked him into it and finally said, okay. And they wrote the check and he goes, bad news. The blue macaw, blue and gold macaw is dead. He had already gotten it from somebody. It died. He owed them the money for it. And so he had the city buy a dead bird. <laughs> like that kind of stuff is hilarious. Oh man. And I mean, do you have any idea how people like acquired animals at that point? Like how he built up a collection? I mean, with a lot of that, those, those smaller zoos are really connected. The people are. And so, you know, so-and-so has this, so-and-so has that, and you know them. Uh, and they kind of just trade in between there. Um, some of them you have to buy. When I was there, so there's a list because we're an AZA zoo. So you can get a list of available animals through all the AZA zoos. And one day my director gives me the list of all the reptiles and he goes, Hey, do you want anything? And so I was like, okay. And so I started looking at the list. Uh, we got blackheaded pythons that like never went on exhibit because we didn't have an exhibit for them, but I wanted blackheaded pythons. So we got them. And uh, I got Madagascan tree boas that almost never went on exhibit, but I wanted them. So we got them. And, and so I was like, I'll get stuff that I, that I want, that I can't own at home. Yeah. And did you, did you have any opportunities to work with like, 
any things that were very particular as far as like feeding and keeping that you may not have the resources at home? Uh, well, that was the first time I got to work with Louisiana pines. And so we had a female and a couple of males and we tried to breed. We never had the luck that other zoos had. We, she would lay eggs, but they were never good ones. Um, but our, our animals were in that breeding program when it was kind of spread out through a bunch of stuff, a bunch of zoos. And then they kind of centralized it lately into, uh, Memphis. But, uh, and that was the first time I got to see them and then the whole, and learn about them. Cause coming from Alabama, those weren't even on my radar. Um, and I loved it. And then one of the things I really got to enjoy was our Gaboon Viper. So we had one when I got there, uh, I went on a vacation, came back, it died. It apparently had some ovums inside that went bad and went septic and it passed. And so we got a new one in, which I'm sure was wild caught. I don't know where it came from, but they got it in for us. And it didn't eat for nine months. So around like month three, we're having to catch it, give it injections and rehydrate. And I say we, I mean me, I'm having to catch it. And so this is this is the first time I've ever had to handle something like that. And I'm handling something that, you know, can definitely kill me. <laughs> um, but that that kind of stuff's exciting. Like it's it seemed like people go, God, that's stupid. I was like, I get it, but it's fun. Like it's it's a lot of fun. You know. For sure. Did you like, did you have all the things in place though? Did oh, you yeah. know how you wanted to do it? Like, and did you have to tube them and stuff I, like that? I had or? the tubes. I had the hooks. I had all that stuff. I will say at the time we didn't have anti-venom. So the rules don't get big. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> they now have it there, which is great. So whoever's working there now, if they get bit, they're good. Um, but yeah, so you put the hook down, you kind of get its head going in there. But I mean, the exhibit for it is awesome. It's a, it's a wide open room set up like an African safari tent. And it's got like an old wooden table and an old microscope. And like there's a board on the back written in chalk talking about Gaboon Vipers and facts about Gaboon Vipers. And then it says like the bite is deadly and the deadly like wiggles off at the end because the guy died while riding it. So that's how the room was set up. So you'd have to walk into this room and it's sitting there on the floor with you. Um, it's intimidating, especially when they go to Huff. I mean, they are loud. And uh, but somewhere around month nine, she decided I'm tired of starving. I, I threw her a rat and she took it and she became garbage disposal. And now she's probably pushing six foot. And I mean, she's probably about that big around. She's massive. She's huge. Is that an animal that, I mean, you guys kept on exhibit consistently all year round? Yeah, it stays, it stays on the exhibit. And is that common by the way? Like uh, how often would you switch off animals on exhibit and whatnot? I mean, it depends. And does zoo like, we didn't have a bunch of off exhibit stuff. Like you can go to some zoos where I've been behind the scenes and they have more off exhibit stuff than they have on right. exhibit. Um, so I can tell you, I've been to Lufkin zoo and the stuff they have off exhibit will blow your mind. Um, but we didn't really have the, those kind of resources. I, I had one big cage where every now and then I would take those Madagascan tree boas and swap them out for our giant Madagascan hog noses. Um, and so we'd move them back and forth. But uh, for the most stuff it stayed out there, I did have a couple of exhibits where, if we caught something we put on exhibit, I had, you know, caught like garter snakes around the zoo. We put them on exhibit for a little while or someone to bring us a tarantula. We put it on exhibit for a little while. That's some old school stuff. I feel, <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's we, coral snakes were always, people would bring us a coral snake. We'd keep it for a month and then let it go. Cause you can never get the things to eat. Yeah. So, um, and then we got, I mean, there were, there were some cool things. Like we got gar that we got on exhibit from a fish hatchery, a leucistic alligator gar, which was Whoa. cool. We had someone bring us in uh, like a two and a half, almost three foot amphiuma, big giant salamander. Um, and so that, that stuff would sometimes either it would pass or we'd let it go and we get new stuff. 
but the main stuff kind of stayed. Yeah. And as far as the, the Ruth and I, do you know the story of how that pro like, I don't know. Someone I heard once said, Oh, none of the zoos could breed them. So that's why they brought them all to Memphis or the, everyone was, they were breeding too many and the Audubon zoo didn't know what to do with them. So they moved them out. I've heard two I mean, exactly opposite stories. I don't know. Being, being the smaller zoo, that was kind of like the redheaded stepchild. Like we had some of their animals, but when they warned them back, they got them and we were left with a few that were off of the, off of the program. Um, some of the males they didn't want to breed anymore. Um, I don't know. I can't imagine they're breeding too many of them. I, I don't, you know, you're talking about something that lays four eggs on a good day. Yeah. So, uh, <laughs> I think Nashville had the resources time and our Memphis, I mean, had the resources time and all that. And, uh, and so they got them, but like I said, I, I've got a buddy here locally who breeds them and probably breeds them better than anybody. I mean, he's, he probably has, 12, 13, 14 good eggs a year. He had one lay, I think one female lay eight or nine eggs, which was Damn. just a massive clutch. Yeah. You know, for and a then, snake, that's not a lot, but for a pine <laughs> snake, it's insane amount. And then you get into this weird thing where there's a there's a group of Louisiana pine snake keepers and breeders that believe and we've talked about this before that if they lay over eight eggs, that's automatically a hybrid. And then, yeah. and then if they, or if they don't like you're good, no matter what, but, and then I know Van Deventer himself, who he put out the signs in Bienville parish in, I believe the eighties or the nineties, as well as I believe the guy who you're talking about did the same exact thing. Yeah. And both of them had had animals that have had eggs that are, or clutches that are over eight. So yeah, I mean, and like, and they can say whatever the other people can say whatever they want, but I know my friend, he collected them himself out of the woods when it was legal, right. when it was legal to get them. But I mean, he can tell you the spot he went and got them off the ground. So, you know, and I say that now, but now if you go out looking for them, you're, I mean, you don't find them. They're just, they're not there. The, the state goes out, they have uh, traps for them. And they, from when I talk to them, they don't usually trap them. They find like one or two on the way to the trap um, a year. So I'm not finding that many. Yeah. I don't know if people realize how hard these animals are to find in the wild. I mean, they live underground. They don't want to come above ground. I mean, you know, mine would stay in, stays in the tub and could care less about coming out of the tub. And whenever he comes out, he wants to dig down underneath something. I mean, they're not big fans of crawling around. Yeah. Plus, I mean, the amount of habitat loss that they've gone through is insane. Yeah. And they are, uh, I don't know. Mine hate humans. Yours seem to be okay. <laughs> Mine loves me. And I've got a friend that has one. Hers love. I mean, I don't know. It's It's got to be like the line and the parents yours came from just had to be angry. And I, cause I, I honestly think attitude is an inheritable trait. Of course. And so some people will say you can handle things down and calm them down. But I've had snakes. There's no calming them down. They are what they are. You know. And I used to think. I used to think differently, I feel, back. But now, after producing clutches from the same parents, I can literally guess the clutches' temperaments. Yeah. I have I have clutches that are flighty, and I have clutches that are bitey, and I have clutches that are calm. And that's fairly consistent, and it's kind of weird. And, and you would think that's not something that – but, you know, I think being a good feeder is an inheritable thing, too. I think, it, mm -hmm. I think that those traits – since they're not a visual trait, people don't think of them as something that can pass along. 
But I mean, you think about humans, you know, metabolism is a, is an inheritable trait, a fast metabolism, a slow metabolism. I mean, why not behavior? Right. And then go ahead. I was gonna say, especially in an animal that has evolved for millions of years to evolve certain behaviors. So. Yeah, you would think, I mean, especially man, like the Louisiana pine snake. I mean, I thought they would all act in that defensive rattlesnake, you know, kind of mimic posture, all that kind of stuff because, because they are imprinted for so long. Well, and they're supposed to be one of the calmer ones, especially like bull snakes. I did have somebody one time worked at the zoo. Uh, they brought me a pillowcase and they caught a snake in the yard. They brought me a pillowcase. I was like, okay. So I took it in, I opened it and it was dark, but you could definitely tell it was a pitchy opus of some sort. And I was like, we're in Louisiana. It's got to be a Louisiana pine. That's awesome. So knowing that every Louisiana pine I've ever worked with, even the ones at the zoo were calm. I reached in and pulled it out. It was a bull snake and it was like a six and a half foot bull snake. And it was obviously released because it did not like people. And so I'm in my boss's office is when he's still alive and it starts hissing and striking. And he looks at me calmly and goes, if that snake bites me, you're fired. So, <laughs> I don't know if he was serious or not, but I got it back in the bag quickly. Uh, but yeah, that was the weirdest thing I said. That's definitely a released pet because we don't have bull snakes roaming through central Louisiana. Right. Speaking of which, I mean, have you done a good amount of field herping there? I don't. I, I'm, I wish I'd do more. My herp group that I started is actually going out in two weekends. We're going to go for a little bit of a hike um, north of us in Louisiana. It's still in Louisiana, but we're going to see what we can find. Um, the problem is, like in Louisiana, it's either cold or hot. And I'm not going out when it's 90 degrees, and it's 90 degrees <laughs> seven months out of the year. And you either get 90 to 100 degrees or you get 30 degrees. We don't get a fall, and spring lasts for about a week. Yeah. And, it's just it's just not comfortable. And I, I'm a big guy. I sweat a lot. Yeah, you're going to have to sweat your balls off at some oh, yeah. point. There's no getting around it. Yeah, it's it gets miserable. But Go I mean, find those speckled king snakes, man. I have yet to ever find one of those in the wild. I've had people bring them to me. And they find them in the wild. My favorite finds, I found buttermilk racers. Hmm. Have you ever seen a buttermilk racer? No, they're blue. First time I saw a picture of one, it was one of those uh, field guides where it's like a drawn picture. It's not an actual actual photograph and the drawn picture is blue and i'm like yeah there's no way the snake is blue and then uh one day i lived on a highway i pull into my driveway and sitting right next to my driveway curled up is a blue buttermilk racer just sitting there and i mean they're kind of like coach whips i mean they're fast when they want to be picked it up held it didn't try to strike but i mean they are this like dark blue with light blue speckling and then with even like almost white speckling on top of that and then uh, we went herping last year and found one. And it's weird. And there's a little pocket where they're brown. They're actually a dark brown with a light brown with tan speckling. Um, and do they go through an ontogenic color change like the other racers do? They do uh, from baby to adult, but not any other time. I mean, yeah, if you see a baby racer, it looks not buttermilk racer. looks nothing like an adult. Yeah. Um, people will show you pictures. And I mean, you unless you know what you're looking at, you'd never know it's the same snake. Cause, cause most of them, like, you know, people would mistake it for like a decays Brown or just something normal. And then it's a black racer, you know, it turns from Brown to black or something. Well, and ours tend to be like very banded. They're extremely banded and colorful mm -hmm. babies. And then the banding all goes away and they get this, like I said, blue overtone and they can be from a light blue to a dark blue and anywhere in between. Um, but I mean, they're awesome looking snakes, but just like any other racer, huge, you know, really fast metabolism. 
they're usually going to want to eat uh, lizards and stuff like that. So but they're a cool snake. Yeah, that's for sure. Um, I feel like uh, I guess no one really keeps those animals in captivity. Just not that. I, I mean, I've seen people do coach whips and stuff like that, but it just seems like they're. Well, I've heard really coach whips are kind of a pet. They don't like being in tanks. So like they don't want to be able they're to like way them. too active. Yeah. yeah. Well, anything about those, those kinds of snakes, they're diurnal hunters. They're not, you know, it's very easy for us to keep ball pythons. And I mean, you get that same thing with corns. You can go in and watch your corns and they'll be moving all the time. Not as much as a racer, but definitely more than my sand boas are moving. Yeah. You know, my sand boas are completely an ambush brother. They're not made to hunt anything down. They're fat slugs. They're not going anywhere quickly, but you know, you get something like a racer or a coach whip. those guys are made to move and, I don't know how much ground they probably cover in a day, but it's got to be a ton. I mean, they talk about um, uh, indigos covering like miles, and those are dire. Like those are hunters; those are predators that go after. They're not an ambush predator, and a slower, larger predator. I mean, and yeah. they, I guess the the exact number I think is like a square mile for a male, and it's, which is it's, it's crazy. That's a crazy amount of space when you think it's a snake. Like it's this is not a deer that's running. Like this is a snake and it's covering a square mile. Crazy. And then you're thinking of, I mean, like something like when you go herping, what you're gonna see is a racer or a coach whip is because they cover so much ground. You can literally just stumble across them. You don't. Yeah. You don't like stumble across very typically. You know, a speckled kink snake or something like that. But yeah, those are always found in like someone's yard. Every time someone's like, I found this in my yard, and it's. it's I equate herping in my mind to like ghosts. Not, I'm not saying I believe in ghosts. I'm saying <laughs> the folks that always want to see ghosts are never the ones that see them. It's always yes. somebody else. The folks that want to see snakes aren't the ones. They're the ones that get the stories of, yeah, I saw this in my yard and I killed it. Or I saw, I'm like, that's awesome. I saw a hose once, a water hose, and I thought it was a snake and it wasn't. <laughs> so it's, it's a pain. Like we went out and you'll find frogs and lizards. And to most people, like, that's cool. But, I want to see snakes. I'm a snake person, so I want to see snakes. Yeah. I mean, you're you're in a good area to do it. You just gotta work for it. Yeah. Very hard. It's it can like I said, it's I'm just I'm lazy when it comes to being hot. You know, I see those folks that do the uh, ambient temperature in their snake rooms. I know your room is like super warm. Not in a million years. Couldn't do it. My, I need mine to be air conditioned. I got a fan going. All my snakes have their own heat. I'm not working in the hot. Yeah. Do you guys have gators? What do you mean? Like in uh, where you are? Oh, yeah. Every body of water. I actually, when I worked at the zoo, my boss and I went and removed one out of a ditch along the highway. So, I mean, they are everywhere. Oh, damn. And is that like something that is, uh, I don't know, is it still cool? To me, like, oh, it I, blows my mind. I never see a it's gator, awesome. But... I kayak fish. And so I go out in my kayak all the time and see them. And it's funny, people that are like, you'll be on message boards for kayak fishing and folks that are from up north. Whenever they see someone take a picture of an alligator, you always get the, oh, never me. I'd never do that. That's crazy. And I'm like, I don't know. I mean, they're there. If, you, if you're afraid of an alligator in the water, you'll never go near the water. I was like, but they don't mess with you. And it's awesome to see them. Are they habituated at all as far as that? My, my one encounter in Louisiana with gators was like, you know, these dudes come up to the boat and beg you for food and shit. No, I've never had that issue. Like when I'm out, They'll stay off at a distance, and if you start getting closer, they'll usually sink down. You'll get past them, and then they come back up. Um, they want nothing to do with anybody. I've never had an issue. I've, I've seen them in saltwater. I've seen them in freshwater. 
Um, and yeah, they, they don't want to be around people, but I mean, also don't be someone who tries to get like right up on top of one. If you see them, get, I mean, it's still an alligator. Give it some space. It's, it's still faster than you in the water. Right. <laughs> yeah. Just don't fuck with shit. So, um, on the captive side, how did you, how did you progress from that one rainbow boa? So I got the one rainbow boa and then, um, my parents were living in Tallahassee. No, they were living in South Georgia and I was there for the summer and there was a Repticon in Columbia, South Carolina. And so my dad was like, you know what? We're going to drive up there and you can get you another snake. And I was, I'd, I'd wanted a red tail again. I'd really wanted one. And I'm again, I'm calling them red tails and everybody can yell at me later because I've called them red nah, tails my entire are. life. You know, you can call the other ones true red tails if it makes people feel better. But so I went up there and I got one and, uh, I loved it. And, you know, I still couldn't afford any of those morphs. All that stuff was too expensive. Um, so I had the rainbow and a red tail. And then I moved out of the dorms. And once I moved out of the dorms, I was like, oh, I got an apartment. I can start owning stuff now. And so I, I ordered two adult red tails offline, a big female, like six and a half foot female, five and a half foot male. They came in two boxes taped together as one box. Mailed, Very nice. Mailed through like the U.S. Postal Service. And it said like uh, harmless frogs on the outside. It's you know, it was, it was before all these shipping companies existed and then just the people would ship it however they had to ship it. Um, and so I got those two. I was like, oh, I'll breed these. And that was when I learned that big male boas don't really want to breed. You know, they get fat and lazy. And so I had them. And then I went to Daytona with my wife, my girlfriend at the time, but now wife. And uh, I was like, I can't afford boa morphs, but I can afford porn snake morphs. And so I bought like five or six corn snakes on a trip to Daytona. And then it went from there. It just started. To, and I was really like, oh, corn snakes are going to be awesome. And then I realized I don't like them. I like corn snakes. I just don't <laughs> like them as much as I like boas. And so I kind of, I was also in college. So I couldn't afford a bunch of cool stuff. And then I moved over here and uh, I kind of became that guy that everybody knew had reptiles. So then my collection became just stuff people were giving to me. Um, which is not anymore. I've stopped doing that. But I mean, I at one point I had like five ball pythons. I had these random red tails. I had king snakes that I had no reason to have. And finally, I was like, those stuff starts to dwindle away. And I was like, all right. It took 17 years, but I'm now focused <laughs> on what I want to do. Um, yeah, I think that's always funny because you always see someone who's in like the the first quarter of their like reptile keeping life and they have a little menagerie. Yeah. And then you you somehow, you know, you got to learn it to keep yourself at bay a little bit and not follow every whim. And then well, you. And I think everybody's done it because I've, like, I've never seen someone own one snake. I've never no. seen it. It's, it's one. <laughs> and then a week later, it's like seven. And so, you know, and back when my collection, my collection got up to 100 at one point because it was, I don't know how many bearded dragons I've owned over the years. People just give you bearded <laughs> dragons, leopard geckos. And uh, at some point, and everybody goes through it. Everybody's like, I can take care of everything. And then you realize, oh, I can't. And it's, you know, people either A, that happens and it's a nightmare and they get out of the hobby completely. And those people probably weren't in the hobby to because they truly loved reptiles. Or they back off and they realize, okay, if I'm going to keep a passion for this, I've got to be more focused. Right. You know? And, the, and the, you, I mean, you've had plenty of folks on here. That they're focused on certain projects and they'll buy an outlier here or there and they'll have a pair of this or a pair of that, but you know, 
like you, you know, your corns, but you've, you've got a pair of this and a pair of that, or at least one of this and one of that. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's weird. Cause to most people it would seem like I have a menagerie, like I just talked about, but most things fit into the puzzle. Yeah. So it's like, they're basically corn snakes. I mean, king snakes, um, Slowinski's corns, whatever the hell it is. I mean, they all fit. Yeah. The Kasachi corns. Yeah. I got it. We had one at the zoo. Uh, I'm almost positive it was Kasachi. It was, it was dark brown. And it's the biggest corn snake I've seen in my entire life. It, it was probably pushing six foot. Damn. Um, and it's big around as like a paper towel roll. Which is the, and it, uh, I remember seeing it the first time thinking, this thing's got to be a hybrid mixed with like Texas rat or something. It's just massive. But then I started to realize that Slovinsky, because again, I lived in Alabama, so I didn't know Slovinsky I existed and uh and then i saw that i was like okay that's gotta be what it is but it was just it was huge um that's also where i got to work with giant texas rats and realized that they don't like people (laughs) texas rats are like because i don't know i've talked so much about generation after generation you know captive born individuals calm down Texas rats is that one species that people have been breeding forever. Still the worst. They still hate people. These, we had three of them. All of them were close to seven foot. Um, and so I, I equate it to like the best way to learn how to work with a lapids, how to tail and hook a lapids work with a seven foot rat snake that hates you. That thing will come at you. It does not. I mean, it's, they're cool to look at cause they're just big and they got those big old faces and they're awesome. But the second you lay hands on them, they S up and hiss at you and they let you know they don't want you around. Yeah. Yeah. I, uh, I don't know. In the back of my head, somehow I'm going to tame down my blue eyed lysistic, uh, Western rat, but I don't know. Maybe I have to breed it to a black rat snake about a couple of generations. And then that's the only way I can foresee that happening. Good luck. I'm that. not saying I'm going to do that. People. I'm just saying that's how you'd have to do it. <laughs> What's well, another thing? I, the other thing I hate about—I don't hate about colubrids. The other thing I dislike is the musking. Like I could never—they they just want to musk on you all the time, and it's not as bad as like water snakes. But man, musk just sticks around. I don't care what soap you use; it's—it stays around forever. You get to like it eventually. I, I'm not there. <laughs> I, Especially I like all my, the rat snake species—they musk pretty much every time. Corn snakes are good, but I like my boas. They don't do it. It's great. Yeah. I mean, I think I think boas give you all a lot of the behaviors being like very semi-arboreal kind of similar niche to corn snakes. I feel like they give you a, a lot of the behaviors without the really small size that corn snakes come out and a lot of the negatives that yeah, that the colubrids have. That's another thing that kills me with like watch I watched someone at a show sell a milk snake to a person and that milk snake I've had earthworms bigger than that milk snake. I mean, it was, I didn't even know they came out that small, but it, I mean, I'm telling you, it had to be been about that big and it was eating pinky tails. Damn. And I'm like, one, I would not have spent money on that. That's insane. And two, I would not have sold it if I'm somebody selling it. But I think about folks like with the colubrids, they're so small when they come out. It's like those coastal, those, I think they're coastal plains milks. They're literally, yeah, like that same exact size, like you said, it's and insane. and you need to assist feed them to to get them started. Like they don't even take feed. I mean, it. I tried once. We had a garter snake. I caught it at the zoo, and it was pregnant, had babies, and I was like, all right, I'm gonna try and keep these garter snakes. They're so small, and it's hard to get them to eat. And they just, I just finally was like, all right, you all get to go back out in the wild. I was like, I can't do this. <laughs> but 
you know, I've got a children's python that I thought, oh man, I should get a male children's for my female. And then I think, no, I don't want to feed those babies. They're so small. They may or may not want to eat. I was like, I'll stick to boas. My boas eat when they come out. It's good. Yeah. At some point you got to be like, is this really cool enough to sacrifice all this time? Especially yeah, like Antaresia or something that going to probably need to be assist fed. And then those yeah. children's and spotted are cheap animals. So it's not even worth it, it to do it. And it sucks work. though. Cause like if you ever hold one, and look at it, there's such a cool looking snake. Cause they're everything people love about a Python, but they fit in the palm of your hand. I mean, they've got the face, they've got the pit. I mean, they look just like any other Python, the, the things that people love about them, but you can put them in a 20 gallon tank and it's okay. Yeah. Yeah. It would be the perfect pet if it, if it wasn't for everything else that's going to fall Yeah, what the hell? I mean, the mine's evil. I can't, I can't hold her. She, I've tried to calm her down. When I, when I first got her, I held her at a show, and she was so small she couldn't break the skin. She probably bit me 150 times. Not kidding. Just constantly biting while I was holding her. And I was like, oh, this is funny. Well, now that she's like three foot, it's not funny anymore. Like it's, she can break the skin. So I'm like, and she never calmed down. I thought, oh, it'll calm down. Yeah, no. Yeah, and it seems like they're either one way or the of the or the other i hear a lot of people with that story and then you know there's the occasional ones that are you know yeah. perfect little snakes but so now I'm, I'm i'm focused on my i don't take in everything that anybody wants to offer me i like if someone asks me I'm like i'll find you a home for it and give me time right. um, but i've yeah i've added a bunch of snakes in the last year but again it's all with the focus and when i go to tenley it's with the focus i'm taking money but it will either get spent on that or nothing. That is, those are my options. So what was the first uh, BCI stuff that you purchased? Uh, normal Colombians. I mean, I, I've always loved the Colombians. I've never been a fan of all the other stuff. It just doesn't look as good to me. Like, you know, I remember back, you could pretty much either get Colombians or Central Americans. And the Central American stuff was always just so dark and dirty and gross. And, and people have done some good jobs with some of that stuff. There's some awesome stuff that's come out of that, like the Nicaraguans and all that. Um. But I just, I've always loved the Colombians. And then uh, I did own a Hog Island at one point. I think Hog Islands are cool just because they have that natural hypomelanistic trait to them. And then they have all those little freckles. And so it looks really, really neat. Um, and then I'm trying to think, I think I bought a hypo while I was still in college. I bought my first hypo. Um, and I did end up breeding that one and getting a litter of hypos and normals from it one time. Um, and I had, had a thing happen to me. It was probably 10 years ago. Uh, most of my boas died. And I talked to some other people who had the exact same thing happen. Um, I mean, they died within like a week. They they got sick Whoa. and they they started to have uh, like diarrhea and they started to they just wouldn't eat and they couldn't get water down. They looked dehydrated and then went. And there was, but it was only the BCI. I mean, I had them in a room with everything else. Nothing else was affected. None of my uh, rainbows, none of my sambos, rosy boas, corn snakes, nothing. Um, so that was a big blow and kind of took away most of what I had and nothing was very fancy. It was hypos and stripes and some normals. Um, but then I had somebody give me a sunglow female, give me a sunglow male unrelated. And that's the, actually the parents to my litter that I have this year. And, uh, and that's kind of started starting me back with my BCIs, breathing them again. I, but now I'm very focused on that. I'm holding back one male and now I'm going to search for a female, but I'm not in a hurry to find it. I'm either going to find what I want or I'll wait. Um, I'm, you know, I'm at that point now, this, this far along in the hobby, you, you either are on the right path or you're still just collecting a bunch of crap and either get sick and die or you get tired of it. Or now I watch people get into something and then 
and then sell it all in like a two or three years. I just can't, I don't understand that. Like I couldn't possibly think of that idea of just selling half of my collection because I just got tired of it. Right. Well, yeah, that goes with the like being newer and kind of experimenting with things and then realizing that you're not that into that particular thing. And then yet you sell right before you're ready to do anything. I mean, I've seen people spend, you know, a couple thousand bucks or more and buy a handful of snakes that would be a great collection for anybody. And then a year later, but sell it all, get rid of it. And like, you were so close to being able to do something. Doing something. Yeah. And you just quit. But then again, you think about all these breeders, they wouldn't still be in business if it wasn't for the fact that they sell, they sell these morphs to kids and then kids get out of it in two to three years, sell them back to them. And then there you go. You, you didn't spur any competition and, and yeah. And see, that scares me. I know that Ryan's going to be upset with this, but that's my problem with retics. I see so many people selling retics, a tons of retics. And I'm thinking, what's going to happen to all these 12, 13, 14 foot snakes? Cause I don't, care what anybody says they're, they're big snakes by nature and the dwarf ones i get but no one's selling a ton of super dwarfs right you know and so i think it's gonna it's like the berm issue all over again people are selling big snakes and i mean they're all gonna get big at some point and i don't know i don't know what's gonna happen and then that, that kind of worries me as a snake keeper because that's the kind of stuff that ends up affecting us legally you know yeah. someone not being able to take care of a retake is what's gonna affect me from being able to keep a rainbow boa and that's insane not to mention, have you seen the type of guys that retakes attract? Well, yeah, Ryan Cox. I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> but like, yeah, it kind of sucks. Like the biggest animal has the most eggs and isn't particularly, I mean, it isn't terribly hard to breed. Yeah. I and mean, it's not hard to feed. I mean, they want to eat. It's not a, you know, and then the problem is YouTube really drove that. And you know what I'm talking about. But I mean, people see pretty snakes <laughs> on YouTube and. And everybody's like, I want one. I'm like, yeah, it's cute as a baby. You know, but you think about people that buy five or six of them, you have five or six snakes that are over 10 foot. That's a lot of snake. But and I think many- something like a, like a boa constrictor is a perfect large snake, but yeah. not too large. Well, and, and they're usually fairly calm. Even like some of the uh, true reptiles, the, B- the BCs, because they got rid of it. It's no longer BCI and BCC. It's BC. now BI and BC. They got rid of the, they gave them their own species. Um, but some of those, you know, they'll get 13, 14 foot. Not normal. I mean, it's not a normal thing, but they can. Um, I think Peruvians are one of the coolest. They turn like a yellow color as they get older. They're awesome looking. Is that the Longicata or is that like yeah. a Peruvian BI or BC? I mean? It's the Peruvian BC. They get this like, banana yellow color as they get older they're really cool and everybody wants the surinams and the guyanans because they have those rich red tails um and they're really pretty and uh yeah i think that more people should get into that than retakes but the problem is our our hobby is so morph driven and i'm not gonna lie i i got sambos because the morphs are fun to play with but like i told you before i own my rainbow boa because i think rainbow boas on their own own are awesome um but gotta get that leucistic though no, I'm good. <laughs> that's, that's my problem with that. Like, I love rainbow bows because of the color. And then someone went, "Hey, look at this solid white one." I was like, "Well, yeah, but that defeats the color." So yeah. that was also, well. That's there also was the anery rainbow bow, but you don't see a lot of folks with anneries anymore because why would you want to turn it gray? <laughs> what was the point of that? So, um, but then you have like the Argentinian red tails are not one of my favorites. Someone Ryan mentioned it there. 
because um, they turn black. I mean, they are almost solid black when they get big. Yeah, that's probably my favorite, and I've been seeing them at like every show, and I've had to really hold back on getting a pair. I think it's been like a year, and I haven't gotten it out of my my system yet. I think if you can get it to where it maybe turns solid black, and the problem that's the problem is a lot of them were not solid black. They were just like got really dirty. Like a lot of melanin popped up and they got really dirty. But I think a lot of people try and bred them a little more to get them solid black. Because everybody wants a solid black snake, no matter what species it is. Um, and those are cool, but I just I love boas in general. Like I said, the size and the attitude are awesome for someone who wants a, a, an animal they can hold that looks impressive. Because yeah. I mean, let's let's be real. Most most people first get into snakes go, this would be really cool, and people will think I'm cool. <laughs> so, yeah. Unfortunately, I mean. It, um... Most like most things in life, it all comes down to like what gets you attention in girls. And I don't know if snakes get you that many girls, <laughs> but it certainly will get you attention. It will get you. And that's, I also reached that point in my life where I was like, I'm not taking snakes out in public. Like, you know, when I was younger, I was like, I'll take them to Pet Smart and Petco. And then I realized, yeah, I don't want to be that guy. Like, you'll go see those people. I mean, there's some that are far more drastic than others, you know, walking around shirtless with a boa or something on. And I'm like, yeah, that, that's a little too much attention. You also like when you take a picture of your snake on a for mm-hmm. a group, like a Facebook group or something, you can also like wear a shirt. Yeah. That's usually cool too. Pay attention <laughs> to what's around you when you take it. <laughs> that's what kills me is I'll see people that have posted, you know, obviously no one is selling snakes on Facebook, but I'll see snakes that are uh, needing to be rehomed on Facebook mm. and they'll take no effort in the picture. I'm like, just take it outside, put it in the grass or something like get, don't take it underneath yellow light in your house, in your hand on some dirt or on top of some dirty carpet. Like I'm just a little bit of pride. Or even you see the picture and like their hands like purple. Cause it's so doctored that, uh, yeah. And you're like, I don't think that's what that snake looks like, but that, that's, I don't know. That, that kills me. But I think those are things that you start to realize as you get farther into the hobby. Right, and I think we all do some form of that in the beginning as well. So I don't mean to like shit on people. No, you but know, it, it's like a natural progression. You know, I went I went through that part where like a couple of years in, people would ask the same stupid questions I I asked before, and like, come on, do your research. And that, but now I'm like, you know what? I just I don't comment on stuff. I'm like, if you want to ask that question, I'm sure there's someone that will gladly answer it. It's not going to be me, but that's just because I don't want to take the time to type the same thing that five websites say. But I've caught like I don't re- I I don't respond to things on Facebook like I used to. Yeah, yeah, and that's good. I mean, a lot of times we can get wrapped up with I don't know what's going on on Facebook, Instagram, all that good stuff, and realize you got to realize. Well, I think I'm kind of speaking to myself here, but like, what really matters is working with the animals. It really yeah. has nothing. I didn't get into this to do social media i got in it to work with animals well and when i got into it none of that existed there was king snake and that was that was all i ever used i was never on fauna that much and so i was on king snake and then i started going to daytona i did daytona like four or five years in a row and um and so i got to meet a few people here or there and that's why i'm looking forward to tinley because now it's you know flash for 10 years in my hobby i've met all of you guys at least online now when i go to this show there's going to be people I can talk to, people I know. I know way more. It's, it's just 
it's going to be so much different for me that I can look back at what I was, you know, 15 years ago to where I am now. It's, it's crazy. Yeah. I think what the weird feeling you get at Tinley is just like, uh, you're just such a small fish in a big pond. You realize like how many huge people, amazing breeders and like oh, yeah. all the things. Cause it's like, you go to the, you go to the herp shows down there or you go to your local reptile show, whatever area you're in. And if you're a vendor consistently, like people know you and you're like, yeah, we're cool. We're doing this thing. And then you get to Tinley and then it's like, oh, I'm not well, anything. Well, and that was the first time I went to Daytona was in 05. So I went 05 through 09. Cause I, honey, I told you I honeymooned in Daytona. And that was last year. I went. Uh, <laughs> the first time I walked into Daytona, I thought, holy shit. Like it takes you an entire day to hopefully get through the entire show. And that's without really stopping to look at stuff. That's just going by each table to go, okay, they got this, they got this, they got this. And then you're going into every little hallway. There's more tables and then there's talks and there's the auction at night and there's all this stuff. And I'm like, this is insane. And so when you go to something, go back to something like a Repticon or some of these smaller shows, you're like, man, there's so much smaller. And then you talk to people who've never been to Daytona or Tenley and they go to a decent sized Herp show, which to me is still, I love Herp shows. I think they're one of the best shows out there. But when they walk into those, they go, this is huge. I'm like, it's all right. There's another level. <laughs> I was like, there's there's one step more. I was like, this is better than others. It's definitely bigger and it's definitely better quality. But it's Daytona, and I assume Tinley will be a lot like it. Um, it's, it's a different world. It's you know, and I remember going just being amazed because you'd see the names in Reptiles magazine and you see the stuff online and like Bob Clark and you'd see I don't I don't know if Ralph Davis. I'm assuming Ralph Davis is still around doing ball pythons, but Ralph Davis. Is he not? No. <laughs> I remember, remember him. You know, the, I remember Nerd. The first time I sold the gold, saw the uh, Golden Child retick on their table. Uh, first time they produced it, and just seeing all these names in person, uh, it was crazy. But I mean, you know, it's one of those things where they're famous to us. You, you realize how small our group, our reptile group, is really. But Bob Clark is famous to us, not famous to anybody else, right? You know, like I said, I'm like I told you, I met uh, Tracy Barker and I told her, I said, it's crazy. I was like, I had to come over here and meet you because I'm, I'm like, I know outside of here, you're not famous. But to me, you are famous. And I had to come say hi. I was like, I had to be able to tell folks I met Tracy Barker, you know. Right. And so these big shows, when you go into them, you start seeing these big displays and you see the names that you've seen all over Facebook and all over everything. It's so weird to realize, man, I don't know as much as I thought I knew. But. I want to see Melissa because Melissa's never been to a big show, right? Not like that. No, no. Probably the biggest one she's ever been to is the one that we vended this weekend in Baltimore. I mean, that's probably the biggest one. And so that's it's going to blow her mind when she walks in. Because I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. Even if you're preparing her, I don't know if she knows what to expect when you walk in. And it's eight rows with aisles like this. And so, I mean, it's, it's And how professional everyone is. Oh, yeah. And how like seemingly... I think it will give, and then I think you'll even feel it a little bit because like Daytona now, I mean, it isn't, it's still like the second biggest show, but yeah. Tinley's really taken over and it's like, damn, this is really what you could do in our industry. This is the possibility. Like this is the seal. Like that's what gets me excited. I think one problem though, is it does give a lot of people false hope because you think about like when you walk in there and you see the guys that are really making a living at this. The amount of money and time they've put into it, 
doesn't show to a normal person. But when you think, I mean, a lot of those guys are making money, got those animals that we would never be able to get. You know, the 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 real path of how that animal got to them may never actually be known. But it's not <laughs> something you and I could just be like, you know what? I want to get that and start that pro that project. Mm-hmm. And so, it's things I'm not willing to do. Yeah, and money that I don't have or I'm not willing to spend if I had it. Exactly. I mean, even that part of willing to do is like taking out $50,000 credit and fucking oh. buying it, a snake with it. And and that's the stories you hear, you know, that took a, took out money on their house to go buy a snake. I'm like, that thing could have died. Like it, we've, we've all had snakes that just, Hey, one day it was dead, you know? And that's what mm-hmm. I'm thinking. I'm, that used to drive me nuts at Daytona. It's one reason I don't like ball pythons. <laughs> Daytona killed me of that. Cause go walking by tables and seeing $40,000 on a ball python. I'm like, who is spending $40,000 on a ball python? But, I mean, although it's funny, I'll tell someone I spent $600 on a Sambo, someone who doesn't own snakes, they go, that's insane, that's expensive. And I was like, I guess it's all relative because $600 on a Sambo isn't expensive when I've seen a snake go for $40,000. Right. But it's, I don't know. I do, it's weird, though, because I don't look at, quite the animals or the especially the ball python sorry people but i mean i i look at things like the zoomed setup or the zilla set like just these companies that have oh yeah created um especially like josh's frogs man it was just crazy to see him set up this like a chunk of tinley like i don't even know how many tables it is it's just a fucking chunk I used and to love like they, shit. That's amazing. Well, Daytona had, they'd always have the corner. It was the Condro coalition. I don't even know if they, those people still get together, but they would have them like in a separate little room and you go in and it was nothing but Condros. I was like, this is awesome. <laughs> this is not something you would normally see. Um, but I, I love looking at displays. That's one of my things when I go to a show, cause I've ended. So like, I love looking at the time some people have put into displays. Um, and the different things that people come up with how to set it up or how to sell animals, you know, the things that normal people would just walk by and go, yeah, whatever. I'm looking at the animal. I'm like, yeah, but that sign is awesome. Or the way they display that animal on that rack of whatever is awesome looking. So that's normally what I'm paying attention to. Although I'm gotten pretty good at running through a show real quick and scanning and going, those are ball pythons. Keep moving. Yeah. But no one, there's not many tables that you're just going to scan through here. Like, yeah. There's something to see at every single table. And there's always like that one animal, whether it was like the first time I went, it was the Borneo earless monitor or, cool. or like last year it was like the Exanthic Timor Python. I think it was. And it's like, Oh, I didn't know you existed. And now you are here in the flesh. Well, I remember Daytona. Uh, the first time I saw moon glow, I remember the first moon glow someone posted on King snake. I was like, Oh, that's awesome. It's all white bow. It's amazing. And they're like, all right, we're going to be at Daytona. And so I remember getting Daytona. I was like, all right, I've got to find that snake. And when I saw him in person, I was like, this is cool. And I remember seeing the first scaleless corn snake I saw at Daytona. Or like I said, the golden child retic, the first one that I saw was at Daytona. Um, but it's, it's those kind of things that like, it is so cool to see the things you're not going to see. Because someone that goes to a, a small local show, they're going to see lots of corn snakes, ball pythons, leopard geckos. But you go to Timley, you're going to see things that like five people own on earth. You know, yeah, that, you're also not going to see like pastel ball python. No, you, pastel, yeah. you know, you're going to see that, the real shit. Things that two people have ever bred in captivity, and one of them's here. Look at this. I mean, you know, things are purple, pink with fucking 
unicorn horns. I don't know. <laughs> All different stuff. And it's just like, yeah, even you can even get excited about a lot of the ball pythons that you see there. See, Cox talked about Garrett setup. I've seen Garrett set up in videos. That's awesome. Like that whole thing, the to have that vision and then build it like that is awesome. Yeah, and that's something where I feel like eventually down the road we could like if you go to different trade shows, they have their booths set up like very inclusive as far as kind of like Garrett's where you can walk into it, you hang out for a little while. Yeah. And I would love to see everyone become more legit. But the only problem is like me and Melissa were scared to do that because people are used to just walking in a straight line yeah. and looking at the displays. I feel well, like if you need to go in, they would just walk past us. But. And in a, in a setup like that, you've got to make sure that your animals can be locked. Because as much as you'd like to trust people, I don't trust a single person. I don't care. I, I mean, it's especially in a situation like that. I've, I've heard too many horror stories of someone's animal just being picked off the table and no one ever saw it. And so, like, it's got to be a situation where they're locked if they're walking in because you can't just be right on top of stuff the whole time. But I do think it is cool to give them that that personal attention. Someone comes in, they can talk to you. You know, I like that. I did see one guy in videos who does um, uh, geckos, but he does it in, like, jars, and they're, like, on a lit-up background. And, like, you pick up the whole jar, and it's got the gecko in it, and you buy the jar with the gecko and everything and take it home. That's a cool setup. It's like lit from behind and like there it's, it's a neat setup. It's just, it's those kinds of things. People took a lot of time and thought into just the display, not even the animal they had to breed, just the display. Yeah. And I think that it, it's one thing to have them all in proper acrylics, right? That's like, that's still a beautiful way to display your snakes, but yeah. But the people who like bring it to the next level, even, even if you look at Matt Minotola's setup, who is, who we're going to be going to the show with and, yeah, he has acrylic displays, but he has like the banners and everything like that and the signs and like everything just looks clean as fuck. Like and yeah. be they're on these certain beans that make just his Borneos look crazy. And well, that's what I'm thinking. I've been to enough shows and I've been around long enough that I know the kinds of things my display isn't as flashy as I'd like it to be, but it's not just snakes and cups on a table and that's it. And you'll see that at some like the smaller shows. It's you don't even know what table you're walking up to. There's no banner for a name or nothing. Always leopard geckos. <laughs> and they're oh. just there. They're in a cup. And you're like, all right, I guess you weren't really planning on selling too much today. Because I mean. Yeah, like people are not going to trust that. Per- it's unfortunate, but they're not going to trust that. Yeah, per- they could have some of the best, most amazing animals. They just don't do the big flashy displays. But the problem is people shop with their eyes. And so you want to stick out. You want to be that booth that sticks out. And when you go to Tinley, like I saw, I mean, those people do that. Those are the, you walk in the money spent on some of those displays and those, those flags and the banners and all that stuff. It's insane. Yeah. Yeah. And that's something that it, it kind of takes time to build up. And that is something that we're like slowly trying to get more and more as far as displays go. And I bought my one display and, uh, it was pricey, but it was worth it. Like it's been awesome, and you know it's it's an acrylic display, but it just it's got more to it than just acrylics. But um, no, talk about it. It's crazy. It's it's so it's awesome. It's it's like a tackle box. <laughs> it all condenses down. It unhooks. You open it up, and you can fold it out like a tackle box with the three different tiers. It's got heat tape underneath each tier. It's got a built-in herpstat thermostat to run all the heat tape. It's got a built-in pop-up light that turns on to light up the displays. Um, it's also awesome. it's made by next level designs and it was 
it was worth the money I spent on it. I mean, it was, that was my thing. I was trying to figure out how did I want my animals to be on a table? You know, and the option was, you know, a deli cup and those little, you know, the cutout inserts where you put it down in them. I was like, that, that is an option. And those are fine. I was like, I need something that sticks out a little better. Plus, if I want to be able to take animals on a long trip, I can plug it in and keep them heated. And I was like, this thing's awesome. Yeah. And then it was one of the things I bought and I thought, man, why has no one thought of this until now? Because it, it makes perfect sense. I mean, and this guy thought of it and it's, it's an awesome uh, display. I love it. Is he based in the Southeast there somewhere? No, he's based out of, I'm going to get it wrong. It's, I think it's Minnesota, Michigan. It's up North. Oh, uh, damn. So how'd you find out about him? He posted in a group when it first came out, he posted his first video in a group. Um, and I saw it and I was like, man, that's, that's amazing. And just the fact that you could, you, I can load all my animals in my acrylics at home, close it up, carry it to the show, pop it open and I'm done. You know, the thing that takes me the longest to set up is my banner. I've got to put the poles up and get the banner up right. My snakes take me less than two minutes to get set up. Um, and so when I saw that, I was like, yeah, I've, I've got to buy that. Um, so, and I'll probably buy another one and another one at some point, but they're, they're cool. Yeah. Yeah. That's super cool. Especially with, I mean, Python and Boa people with the heat is pretty clutch. Yeah. Like, like at Baltimore Repticon, I swear it had to have been like high to mid sixties in that room in the morning. Really? And see, so you think about that, like on a two day shows, animals sitting in a room at 60 degrees for two days, not getting to heat up. But I mean, like, don't get me wrong. Mostly snakes are being fine. I mean, they're, they're going to be fine. They're tougher than we give them credit for, but still it's that little bit of like, all right, my, my animals are heated. I feel good. And you can definitely tell because you go around and see some snakes and they're super calm at a show and you get it home. You're like, this thing's evil. I was like, yeah, that's what happens. They were cold. I was like, you didn't see the actual snake, the way it behaves. Um, you know? And so my animals, I take them out They're They're moving right away. There's no, just like sit there. And so you get an idea of what they're really like uh, when you get at home, you don't get this, this show animal that is just freezing in a corner. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's super true because I mean, I even notice it with, with my own animals, you take them out and they act completely different and they're all sweethearts at the show. And that goes for any animal that I've ever picked up at a show pretty much. And, Are you going to bring any adults to the show to show off what your animals will look like as they get older? Yeah. So that's something to wear like is pretty much mandatory at this point. The guy I bought from in um, Conroe, he had adults of everything he had on his table. And there's a ton of adults. But being able to see some of them, you're like, oh, wow. Like I'd never seen a, a salmon ghost, which is why I ended up buying a super salmon ghost. You know, if I'd seen it on a table, I'd go, yeah, it's all right. It's a little pink. But then he showed me the adult. And I was like, holy crap, that thing's gray with pink all the way down its body. I was like, that's awesome looking. Yeah. So, Even some of my coral ghosts look red right now. And, and, and it's so, like, yeah. And that's the problem with, with corn snakes is they're, they're so different from baby to adult. You know, with my snakes, they, they are pretty much what they are, or they'll get darker. That's usually, I mean, it's, but like, especially with Samboas, they are what they are. There's, there's no huge change, but you're in an area where your snakes are definitely going to change. You're like carpet python folks. I mean, it's, you've got to sell people on an idea. Well, it's not that drastic. Ours don't come out brown and black. <laughs> so sorry, carpet python people, but you're, you got a tough product there. Well, having to keep it for so long, just because I, I look at that stuff and I think, man, if I had sold one and then a year later I get a picture and see how it looks now and it's amazing, 
I hate myself. Now, that's the why the, the one I ended up keeping, I wasn't going to keep. And then as it started to shed, it started to get more and more pink. I was like, no, I've got to keep that one. Because like, if I sell it and someone sends me a picture, I'm going to hate myself. Yeah. Yeah, a lot of times I go off a hunch. So I say, hey, this is my first year doing this project. I, I think all these lighter ones are going to turn out the best. And then all of a sudden, I don't really like those. And the darker ones turn out the best. And so that's kind of what happened with the first year of my ghost project. So it's like, fuck, I wanted the darker ones when I was, when I kept back all the lighter ones. I, like I said, the, the corns I've always found so weird just because like my daughter bought a, um, what she bought? I think it was an A-male Sunkiss. And as a baby, it just was like an A-male. And then he showed me what the adult looks like where it's just like basically orange the whole way down. I was like, well, that's awesome. That's not what I was expecting when I looked at an albino. Like I've had albinos and, they look albinos from baby to adult. I'm like, this is not going to look that way. Yeah. 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 Super, super crazy, especially when you get into orange and reds and things that come in. But so you, as far as babies that you've had this year, you had some, uh, that Sunglow project, right? Yeah. So I had, uh, I've got a few babies left. It was, it was Sunglow to Sunglow. Um, and I, and I've always been weary of doing an albino to an albino, but it was the two, it was the two I had. So it happened because there's and always, is it sharp or call? Do you know it, what's it's going call? On? It's call. Um, yeah, sharp's expensive. Not as expensive as it used to be, but it's expensive. Snobby, but snobby albinos, those sharps. Well, it used to drive me up. People would always talk about you know calls keep their color, and they did a lot of. I mean, uh, sharps keep the color, and calls fade, and it was true. But so many people have worked now with calls, and they've kept the prettier ones and bred the prettier ones that you can find some now where like you look at a baby picture and. And people go, yeah, I don't know what it is. You don't know. It's like this litter when it came out really surprised me. And as they've aged, they've gotten so pink. Their sides are solid pink. Um, but my whole fear, again, of the albino to albino gene was of bug eye babies. You always hear like if you breed albino boas to albino boas, you can get some defects. And I had 18 babies and one did have bug eyes. But it is it's red like it is red, red, um, unfortunately. It's the best looking one out of the whole litter. And <laughs> as soon as the eyes heal up nice and good, it's going to a friend for free as a pet. And so, but I, the one I've kept as it's gotten older, has gotten pink and pink. It's head is solid pink. It's sides are pink. Um, and so my goal is now after looking at that, I was like, you know, I'd like to produce sun glows that turn solid pink without having to mix in like blood and some of these other genes that make them red. I would like to take just albino and hypo and over time produce babies that are going to be pink as adults. So that's kind of my goal there um, with that project is and it's a, it's a long-term project, but it's something I think could be a lot of fun and pay off in the, in the long run, at least pay off for me, maybe not money wise, just for, to make me feel good when finally I have a baby and that thing comes out pink and red. Right. Do you know, do you know how, those projects have kept their value over time because it's like i swear to god boa projects have kept so much more valuable than anything else i've seen i think ball pythons and retics have helped i think the fact that everyone is focusing on those yeah there's people doing boas and there's a lot of people doing boas but it's still not as mainstream as the other ones and so i can go to a show and still not see like I went to, to Conroe and there were very few people with boas. There was I think one other breeder and then several other folks looked like they were just reselling what they had gotten some, or they maybe had one litter and had like two or three left. Um, or you were Tracy Barker had really awesome like VPI stuff and really cool looking things that 
I can't afford, but um, they're not as common. Whereas you can go to a show and every other table or even less than every other table, every table has ball pythons on. Um, and so that's why you see some of those projects. The, the money drops quickly in the first three or four years, just because, you know, 700 people are breeding ball pythons and supply and demand. Whereas with boas, it's not being done as much, um, which I'm good with. I'm, I'm happy. And it's not even for a money thing. I, I'm, I'm happy to not see boas get like ball pythons. No, it just kind of sucks when either like people are, are doing it for money or the projects wear out in like five years and they're not worth anything. So it's like people never hold on to their animals. Yeah. Cause like, what does that male, you know, where's that male spinner blast now or whatever the hell you call things. Well, and that's with, with this, I mean, if I wanted a red boa, yeah, I can go out and spend a thousand bucks to get a red boa. They're, they're, they're out there. They're, you can get one mixed with blood and it will be red. But I was like, I like this because one, I like the snakes and I like the idea of just a project, having a project, having a end game that you want to get to. Um, and so I've been happy, you know, the rainbows are what shocked me the most. The last time I looked at ever buying rainbows was 10 years ago and they were 125 bucks everywhere. That was the going rate for a rainbow boa everywhere. And now they're like $300 for normal rainbows on tables. It's like, man, what happened? But for $300 now, but I think a lot of it is it's ball pythons and, and retics and those things that, that everybody wanted to breed left everything else by the wayside. Yeah. But I mean, we're seeing a lot more. We're it's coming seeing, back. Yeah. Level off a lot. I'm, I'm oh. happy. Shows have a lot more variety than they did four or five years ago. Oh, 100%. And I mean, does it have to do with some of the, the difficulty of breeding boas too, though? I don't know. I mean, I've always found it easy. I just put them together and they go. Like I don't. It's I'm 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 horrible when it talks like about breeding because I don't cool anything down. I I don't do food cycles or light cycles or temperature cycles. I just I'm like, all right, we're gonna put you together and we'll see if you have babies. And and it's worked for the most part. Like I said, I put my uh, my rainbow boas together and they wanted nothing to do with each other. I went and bought some uh, coconut bedding, put it in there. It raised the humidity. And they went straight to it. I was like, man, I wish I thought of this before, but I'm lazy. I just had them there before they only were. But with with my my red tails, I mean, they're usually pretty good. The only trick I have found is that keep your males small. Uh, like I said the big males get lazy, and mating is not the number one thing on their mind. Yeah, so I know that like if you if you talk to Vin Russo or you read his book, like a large part of his success he kind of attributes to how he feeds his animals. So could you give a little insight about how you feed yours? Yeah. So way back, I used to be one of those feed once a week or on a regular schedule. Now I feed kind of when I feel like it, I keep my animals, make sure that their body weight looks good. And so I'll feed my female, my adult female once, maybe twice a month, a, a large rat. And then my male will get like once every month and a half to two months, a large rat. Um, and it keeps that, that body shape, that bread, that loaf of bread shape that you want for a boa. Um, but I, I don't harp on like, man, I've got to feed this and this. I got to feed every week. I got to feed every two weeks. Um, one, 
That's just not that's not, not naturally how they eat. They don't these guys eat and then sit for a long time. And two, a lot of times you see they get overweight. I mean, I had someone give me a six foot red tail that had the head of a four foot red tail. I mean, the thing was the size it should be eating small rabbits, and I was having to feed it medium mice until the head grew into its body. Wow. Um, it was the weird when I opened the bag, I was like, he gave it to me. I didn't say anything. I was like, Jesus Christ, you had to power fed this thing to get the body here, but the head didn't match up. Um, and so I just kind of feed when I want to Now, if I'm going to be breeding, I know I'm going to be breeding an animal like my Sambo's right now, all my females, I'm feeding a large mouse once a week. Like they're getting a large mouse once a week, just keeping weight on them. But the great thing about them is once they're pregnant, I can still feed them. They'll still eat. Whereas like carpet Python, I bred my, bred my carpet Python last year. And then I was like, all right, well, I'll keep feeding it once it gets pregnant, gets gravid, and I, and I put some weight on it. It had wanted nothing to do with food. Whereas like my red tails, my rainbow boas, my samboas, I just feed them really small meals. So like my uh, my rainbow boa, I think, is pregnant. So I give her like an adult mouse once a week. You know, Normally she would eat a large rat. But right now she's eating an adult mouse once a week, just a small meal to keep some weight on her throughout the pregnancy. Yeah, so you don't have to like go crazy, get a bunch of weight on her because she's not going to eat for a period. No, yeah, I'm not stressed about that. And and with with most of, I mean, as long as they've been on, a, and you know, this, as long as your snake's a healthy weight on normal time, you'll be fine. I mean, they're they're gonna a lot of things are gonna look like crap after they give birth or lay eggs. It's just naturally how it is. They a lot goes into them. You know, I think if you fatten them up too much, then you get them fat. You don't want a fat snake. That's not good for it. Or the breeding, and then there was that, you know, that that whole study where they talked about the way a snake's body actually changes when it eats and digests food. You know, its whole body, like all the organs, increase in size during the digestion. You know, and if you're feeding your snake every week, they're never going back down. It's never resting. Your snake will never last as long. Right. You know, and I've had, like I said, I've had my snake, my my rainbows for 17 years. You know, and I, granted, they can live to be 30 or 40, but. How often do you see folks with 17, 20 year old snakes? It's, I mean, it's not that often. Yeah, except corn snakes. Do you know how many people come up to us at the show? Like, oh, my corn snake's 30. Like, holy shit. One person said, um, you know, it was 30 years old. And the only reason it died is because my house lit on fire. So, Jesus, they can only really kill it with fire. I can't imagine a 30 year old corn. (laughs) No. I mean, I have a pretty rough looking, like, 15 16 year old i just picture like a snake where like it's definitely got cataracts in its eyes like it, it's definitely blind at that point it's got the like, subcutaneous fat for some reason colubrids yeah. have that when they get older and yeah because like my uh my rainbow my female rainbow has one eye that has got like a cataract in it she's still fine she eats great she acts great but once you got about 15 or so her eyes started to like haze over a is little that bit. the one that's gravid yeah Holy shit. <laughs> she's, she's a beast. She's fine. She's probably, I mean, six foot, and like thick. She's healthy. But yes, yeah, she had one eye that's kind of like went blind in, but she eats great. And the, the more people I talk to with older snakes, it just seems like they're apt to just keep on going, like production wise. I yeah, mean, and, and I think as long as you're not one of those that like, breed them every year like just constantly every year like she has these babies it may be the last litter i ever have her give me but like my my red tail had that litter this year i'm not breeding her again this year i'm gonna give her a whole year to put weight on and get comfortable again you know but you'll see folks that like as soon as it has babies they fatten it back up and it may be different i don't know how it is with the corn snakes i think corn snakes fast metabolism it's a little different 
And plus they're laying the eggs. They're not holding babies for, you know, four or five months. It's so it's a little different than a snake. Yeah, you can, you can run them over, yeah. over again. That, that's how they're built though. You know, that's. Yeah. It's, it's different than a snake that had to carry those babies. Like, cause my rainbow is going to carry babies for five months. So, you know, I'm not going to try and fatten her back up and have her ready again for the next season. She, she had them for five months in there. Is there any special consideration to take when they are gravid and, you know, since they give live birth and whatnot? I, uh, I mean, I don't mess with them. I don't want to pick them up. Um, you know, you'll see folks like handle their snakes that are pregnant and all that. And I'm like, I'm sure they've been fine, but I don't want to jostle any of that stuff. And I leave them alone. I don't touch them. I make sure that they got water. And like with her, I, I spray her cage down. Like she's on coconut bedding. I make sure it's humid in there and she's comfortable. Um, but whenever snakes are pregnant, I just leave them alone. Um, you know, I, I do obviously as it gets closer to the uh, the date to give birth, I do that whole like peek in like 15 times a day and freak out. And um, my red tail, I actually I bought a um, a, a camera, a webcam for my room, um, and I put it right in front of the cage. So like whenever I was like out or at work, I could always log on and be like, all right, is she gonna have her babies? Because I didn't want to miss it. And so I still have it in my room now so I can check on snakes at any point. But uh, my big thing is just leaving them alone. I, I always, it always worries me when I see people like at a show, you'll see people selling a pregnant snake or selling a gravid snake. And I'm like, why, why'd you even bring that? That thing should be in a cage at home, comfortable until it has babies. Like it's, it's not worth it to do that. Why would you ever do that? That's always got me. And you know, turtle folks are one of the worst, but when they bring eggs to a show, you ever seen that? No. Oh man, I've seen I've seen it with ball pythons too. They'll bring eggs to a show that are hatching at the show. Mm. I'm like, there's there was no need for that. I'm like, you, you obviously can't sell it right now. You have no idea what it's like. It hasn't eaten. I was like, leave it at home. There's that's don't bring eggs. <laughs> you're only, yeah, you're only asking to complicate things. In in return, you're getting attention though, which well, we have yeah, talked about previously. Well, and then the problem is you have those people that walk around that see that and they're brand new to the hobby. And because they saw it at a show, they feel it's the norm. You know, just like someone sees a meme online, they saw it online. It's got to be true. Or they watched one YouTube video where a guy, you know, handled a water moccasin and didn't get bit. It's got to be okay. Yeah. But I think that's one thing I worry about in our hobby is, is, uh, now, especially with YouTube, is just the wrong information. The spread of wrong information is so much greater than what it used to be. You know, on the uh, on like King Snake and all, people would come and go, "You're wrong, you're stupid," and people go, "Oh yeah, they're wrong and stupid." But now you can't do that, and it's it works. Well, and you can't really like discredit a YouTube video. You can leave a comment, and there's 200 other comments, yeah. and it, it, there's really no getting your point across. There's no back and forth, which is and that's why nice I'm commenting on stuff. I'm just like, it's it's not worth it's not worth the fight. You know, I'll do my best in person when I talk to people to try and educate them. But you know, I, there was a period where I left the zoo and before I came to teach, I worked at PetSmart. Oh, it was so. It's weird to be trying to sell somebody an animal and have them look at you like you know nothing because you work at PetSmart. And I'm like, I have a degree in biology, 50 snakes at home, and I used to work with a gaboon viper. I think I can sell you this corn snake. But like, Which is like, shitty because that's how we always act towards PetSmart people, not knowing you know who's who and what's what. 
Now I will admit, usually they don't know, <laughs> but, but like I, you know, I'd sell someone like fish was always a bad one. Like you just sell someone a goldfish, you go, all right, I got a bowl. I was like, that's great. Get a beta. Well, I want a goldfish. You can't put a goldfish in a bowl. It won't, it won't work. Well, I had one in there and it lived a long time. How long did it live? Three months. Like they lived for like 30 years. I was like, and, and they'll go, yeah, well, mine didn't, but they'll never connect. Yours didn't because you put it in a bowl. <laughs> But because I'm telling you this and I work at PetSmart, I don't know what I'm talking about. And that, was, that would always drive me nuts. You know, I get it now from students, but it's because they're teenagers. And right. they obviously know everything. Well, give those people a video camera and some snakes and then you got yourself a channel. <laughs> and like, and that's what's hard is because the kids are learning and, you know, myself included. I was, you know, always within or always in the process of learning but I'm also trying to get out content and do things like that. But it was different when, when I was a kid and learning, it meant I went to books a million and bought whatever reptile book they had in the pet section. I bought a book on dumpy tree frogs once I've never owned a dumpy tree frog, but I bought the book cause it was there. And so you read a book that someone had to take time and research and write and do now anybody with a camera can post a video online. And if you search, you know, bearded dragons, there'll be 5 million videos of them sitting in hammocks with clothes on. I mean, it's, 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 it's so weird how information is spread now. You would think it's, you know, I remember when, when I was younger thinking, oh man, in the future, we all got these computers are gonna be so much smarter. We're gonna be able to, it's made people dumber. And I, I think smartphones are the, are the worst thing. Cause now it's all at your fingertip whenever you want it right or wrong. Well, it makes people who know how to use it smarter. It makes people who are gullible and naive worse, which, which I makes the gap the of larger it the bulk of people are gullible now it's it's really bad when you're like friends with somebody on facebook and they repost a meme you're like oh i thought you were smarter than that or like just fake shit just like fake articles you're like yeah. oh no man just just google it dude I was like, yeah. already did this i was saying you could you could have googled it and the very first thing you saw would have said not true but yeah. if it's got a pretty picture and words on it it's got to be true that guy today, he uh, when he sent me that fake shit, I'm not going to get into the whole thing, but he was like, so you're telling me that you fact check everything that you see on the internet? I said, yes. So I saved myself looking like a fucking idiot. Of course I do. You have to. Yeah. It, I said, it, it's the point now, though, where as I've gotten older, I just scroll. I see it. And sometimes I'll even click on it with the thought of, I need to comment and like, my comments aren't going to change anybody's mind. It's just not. It, no, no one has ever gotten smarter, truly smarter, from a Facebook <laughs> argument ever. No. And so I just don't. I I scroll. I'm like I'm not gonna. I can't get into it. Yeah, and and you just hope if that person stays in the hobby, which they probably won't, but if they did, they'll realize that they were they were there at that particular time and they were wrong and they would progress. Well, and that's why I'm saying I, I have a care sheet. That I get to them, that I made myself that I feel confident is good and has all the information they need. Because at least when they leave me, I've given one chance that they're not going to go search and find the wrong information. You know, I, you know, because pet stores still sell pet uh, heat rocks. So obviously the wrong information is still out there because they wouldn't sell them if people didn't buy them. Um, and so that's, I just want to give people at least one factual piece of information when they take an animal home from me. Yeah. That's something that, that we've been thinking about doing is, you know, 
creating some type of, I mean, I wish I could do a little booklet, but at least like a care sheet of the animal and the common mistakes. And then, you know, refer them to a YouTube video on how to properly care for them. Well, that's why I think you, you've got a great thing where you can, you can make a series of YouTube videos and then just link them. And like I told uh, Melissa, you could do little QR codes on a, on the back of a business card. And all I got to do is scan it and take them right to the video on how to set up my corn snake. Right. You know? And you've got that whole avenue that you could do that with yours. And, and, and if you can do it in a five minute video, people will watch that. No problem. Cause that's kind of about the attention span a five minute video and, and you're good. Yeah. Yeah. So that's something that, I mean, we have all that stuff up, but it's not really like it wasn't specifically made for a customer bringing home their corn snake. So that's something that, that we're thinking about doing in the future. Yeah. I saw Cox said the rainbow genus is known for eating slugs. I've never seen rainbows eat slugs. I didn't know that was a, I didn't know that was a thing. I've also seen them. Apparently they like assist their babies out of the, uh, this embryonic sack. With they'll, them. Uh, yeah, well, they'll have them and they'll go around. And you'll see them nudge. Um, and sometimes you'll even see them because they'll eat the stillborns and they'll eat the infertile ovums. Um, so that's one of those things. If you're not home to watch a snake give birth, you may not actually know how many were born because there may have been a handful of stillborns that you didn't see or eat. Um, but I've seen videos of where the moms go around and you'll see them like just lightly bite down and the baby moves and they go, Oh, nope, that's alive. And they'll keep moving on. Um, it's, it's really neat to watch how caring they are, at least at birth. Um, you know, People don't think of that with snakes. And that's one thing. One thing when I remove babies from a cage from a mom, I am, I wait till she's done and I completely remove the mom because I'm not dealing with, with that. You know, she, she hasn't eaten in a while and she just had all these babies and she's in protective mode. I don't want to get bit. And what do you do when you first take those babies away? I mean, how do you set up a baby rainbow boa? So any, any of my boas, I take the whole litter and I put them in one tub together on wet paper towel and I'll put like a shallow water dish in there. Um, and then I keep them in there on that wet paper towel because you've got things like uh, basically the umbilical cord, but the cord that was still attached, you're waiting for that to fall off um, on some of them. Um, some of them haven't absorbed everything completely. And so you're still waiting for that to finish up. Um, so I just set them on there and I keep spraying it. And as they start to shed, once they start to shed, they get to go into their own tubs. Um, and I keep them on paper towel in a, in a water dish. Um, keep it super simple. That way, um, I'm not, I don't have to worry about anything, any bedding or any issues. I can see everything that's happening. I can see when they go in the bathroom. I can see all that stuff easily. But, yeah, the big thing with anything, if it's Samboa, Rainbow Boa, Red Tail Boa, they go in a big tub with wet paper towel um, until, they, until they go through that first shed. That's something that I know nothing about, by the way, as far as uh, sand boas. <laughs> Um, so how did you first get into, uh, Sambo's? I, uh, so my parents lived in Tallahassee, Florida. There used to be a, we'll call it a reptile store, but like nowadays if you were to walk into it, you'd, you'd want to spray yourself down for mites. Um, but I went in there because I had picked up a doom rolls bow at a show and it was evil, just straight up evil. The only mean doom rolls bow on earth. Would not calm down, would not stri stop striking. And then someone gave me another Dumas bro that they couldn't get to eat. And I really couldn't get it to eat on a regular basis. So I had these two babies that were kind of defective and they weren't, I didn't enjoy them. 
So I took them to this reptile store. I said, hey, can I trade these for something in here? He goes, sure, what do you want? And so I looked around and he had a, an anery male and a, like a young adult female that I still have actually. And that was years and years ago. Um, I said, look, let me get those. And I think I think also traded for a corn snake, some sort of ghost, something, something. I don't even remember what it was. It was gray. But uh, and I got those sambos. And those first ones I got. And my friends made fun of me because they called them, you know, worms. They look, I mean, they look like worms. They're not, they're not your typical boa shape. Um, and they really have no neck and they just come, the nose comes to a shovel. It's, it's a weird, it's a weird snake, but it's one of the reasons I love them. Um, and they always reminded me of the, the sandworms from Beetlejuice, which was like one of my favorite movies as a kid growing up. I thought you were going to say Tremors or something. Like Tremors that. was also one. Of my, that's another one. I love Tremors. I watched it every time it came on TBS during the summer when I was a kid. Um, but I just, I thought they were cool. And so I had this pair forever. And, uh, back then it was just, you had normals and anneries and that was about it. And so I've kept them, kept them. And I've had, I had the same pair for a long time. I actually lost the mail for three months in an apartment complex. Another neighbor found the snake downstairs that crossed his foot. I didn't know him. He took it next door to show his neighbor who actually was my friend. And my friend goes, Oh wait, that's my buddy's snake. Let me have that back and give it to him. So three months later I got him back. Um, and he fathered a couple of litters and, I, and they weren't successful. I mean, they were small litters and half wood neat, half wood. And then finally about, Oh, four years ago, someone gave me a massive female and I bred her and it worked. I was like, Oh man, this is awesome. And then I started looking back into Sambo's and there's so many different genes now than there used to be. And so many different combinations of them and so many different types of Sambo. Not even just Kenyans because everybody's used to the Kenyan Sambo. But there's like rough scale samboas are awesome looking. They look like little tiny vipers, like little like, like salt scale vipers. And then um, Indian samboas are massive and pretty. And then um, there is the uh, oh my brain's like it's the the Saharan samboa, which looks like a sock puppet. Its eyes are like <laughs> right up on top of its head. It looks like it's the goofiest looking snake. It's got like the beadiest of all the eyes, right? They're all yeah. a little bit beady eyed, but they got like super weird. Well, and it's weird like because most of them sit towards the top of their head yeah there's they sit right on top of their head and it just has like this big grin on its face it looks like it's just happy to be there it's <laughs> but i can i realize because red tails were what i love but i can't house in you know, seven females that are all eating jumbo rats every you know three two three weeks like it's expensive but i can house 30 samboas for less than what it would have cost me to do to do red tails. And now there's so many different morphs. I can have fun genetically because the genetics is the fun stuff for me. I mean, you own corns genetics fun. I mean, it's, it's a fun game to see what's going to come out. And so yeah, sometimes I hate to admit that, but the, yeah, like, cause people look down about morph people, blah, blah, blah. I don't know, man. It's fun well, both ways. Look, I enjoy genetics. I, I remember when I first got into the corn snakes, they had the uh, corn snake calculator or whatever. And I would just sit on there for like hours, like, what happens if I mix this and this? What would happen if I mix this and this? And and now I get to do it with my samples. I'm like, all right, I'm gonna mix this and this, and it's it's gonna be cool. Um, and so that's I got. I thought it was really it was allowed me to do the genetics, allowed me to do samples, which I've always loved. And uh, and they're live birth. I don't have to deal with eggs. So yeah. And no. sorry, you you missed my favorite sambo. Well, no, my second favorite is uh, probably the the Russian those black, oh, black Russian Russians. sambos. Those yeah. are awesome. I, I, I'm going to get me some of those at some point. 
Um, but the ones that turn like there's some that turn black with a little bit of white on them, and then you can find some people that breed them like they are solid black and they are awesome. But those things, like, you have to get them cold, like, they brumate them like you would do colubrids. Like, it's one guy told me he dropped them down like into like the 60s and 50s. I was like, that's insane because I've got Kenyans and I have to keep them at like 95. <laughs> I mean, yeah, if they're truly from Russia, I would think, I mean, they're exposed to a crazy elements. So that was the one that I was like, those are really cool. I, I, I will probably get some of those at some point. But I also love, I love small bows in general. Like I have a pair of rosies that I think are cool. And you had like, you had, um, oh, what's his name on a couple weeks ago with the rubbers? Yeah. I've, I've always loved I, he, the same book he was talking about, the field guide he was talking about. I know the picture because that's the picture that made me go, well, that's an awesome looking snake. <laughs> and I've always wanted a rubber bow. But the problem is, like, if they show up for sale, if you don't have the money right then and there, they're gone in 10 minutes. Someone already else. Someone's bought them. Yeah, which is weird. I mean, it's crazy that they're so in demand and no one's met them. them. (laughs) Even though they're, like, native and you would think that they seem easy to keep, but apparently, like... That's what always killed me. I was like, we have two boas in the United States, and rosies have done pretty good. I mean, I I can't really get into rosies because too much because I don't do locale stuff. The kind of locale stuff they do with rosy boas would drive me nuts but yeah no one no one does rubber boas not at least on a scale where like every year like so-and-so every year produces rubber boas um but they're cool like that and i get it some people don't like that whole you know melissa doesn't like it that worm shape it's a glorified earthworm let's be honest it is it is but it's a boa and it belongs to north america and it's ours it's our boa even if they're defective (laughs) so how do you go about I mean, you hinted a little bit at it, but the Kenyan Samboas and just general care information for them. So they're super easy. I keep mine on Aspen. Uh, some people will do sand, but the problem with sand is, one, it's heavy. So like, if, especially if you're doing like tubs, it's a nightmare. It gets everywhere. Um, if you did get that, the rep to sand that's colored, it tends to stain your snakes. Um, and then you just, there's always that fear that it could like, they could get clogged in in the mouth or in, in the, it's just, there's two, to me, there's too many negatives with sand than positives. And so I stay away from it. I like Aspen. They like a hot spot of about 95, which is going to be warmer than. Holy shit. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's warm. They, they like it warm. Um, you know, they don't lay on it a ton, but they'll definitely go to it, warm up and then come to the front of the tub. Um, and then I just, I leave a small bowl of water in there with them. Uh, and it's they're super easy. There's not much to them. They're not, they're not going to be a snake you're going to enjoy seeing because they're going to stay buried all the time, you know. And if you're like, well, then I'm not going to give them enough bedding to bury. Well, then they're going to be stressed out all the time. You know, that's that's the thing. They they want to be buried. Um, I also would never suggest just reaching right in and grabbing one because they seem to always be in somewhat of a either defensive or food mode. And I don't care what snake you've ever owned, it doesn't strike faster than a sandboa. Those things, it is insane. Um, if they can smell mice, you just run it across the top of the bedding and out of nowhere, they, they strike from the side and they grab it and pull it in. Um, but care is super easy. And I, I really think more people should get into them. The problem is they're, they're not just a, they're not a great display snake. Right. And they're not, and they're a little special when it comes to holding them because they're not going to hold on to you. You, you've got to make sure they don't fall. They, um, they're a little clumsy. <laughs> so i mean they will definitely like if you're just like holding it it will crawl right out and plop onto the ground it's not 
anchoring itself to you like a corn snake would or even a, a red tail would. Right. But care wise and size wise, I mean, you're talking about females don't get bigger than two foot, at least for Kenyans. Males really don't get even bigger than a foot. And so you can keep a male in a 10 gallon tank, no problem. A female in a 20 gallon tank, no problem. I know I said the word tank, so some people are going to say I'm horrible, but mm-hmm. you know, if you own one snake, a tank is okay. And I guess, and it seems like a Kenyan in particular, I mean, that's an animal that doesn't need humidity. No. Like that would be a decent, you know, that would suffice as a setup and it's not getting out of the tank either. So, no, I mean, you know, people will go, well, they like to climb. I was like, well, it's a snake, but they'll, they'll climb things if there's there to climb. But if you look at them physically, climbing is not the number one skill. Yeah. <laughs> Hauling that big butt up into a tree is not beneficial to them. So, yeah, if you give them some furniture in there, they may climb on it. And you may see them sitting on top of stuff, but it, they're fine in, a, in my tubs, hidden in the dark, and getting food once a week. And then you take, like I said, I like to use a hook to just pick them up at least and get the middle part of their body. And once you get them out, they're good. But they're not fans of being picked directly up. They, they kind of freaks them out a little bit. Um, but once they're out, they're awesome snakes. Are there any negative aspects to keeping them too humid? Like what happens if you were to keep them too humid? Uh, I mean, if you were to keep them too humid, it's it's just like if you were to keep a snake that's not for humidity, it's you could have respiratory issues. Um, and then obviously, if, if it's wet, scale rot, which is you know their body's not made to be around moisture. But I mean, if you keep them on aspen and they have good ventilation, yeah, I mean, I live in Louisiana, so I mean, you're not going to find a more humid state other than maybe South South Florida. But um, and they do great. I don't have any issues. Like I said, I think. For their size and the different colors they can come in now. I mean, you've got albino and paradox albino. You've got anery. You've got stripes. You've got uh, snows that you can make. And it's just so many different colors now. Paint. Did I do one? Paint. That is one. It's an awesome one. That's yeah. I plan on getting paints this year. It's that thick stripe down the back, um, which is really, really neat. Um, and so I just think more people got to see them. I, mean, I go to shows and no one will have them. I, I've been in shows and there'll be zero at a show which just blows my mind for a snake that used to be fairly common. Um, and so that's kind of my goal now is to be the guy that I bought a bunch of adult females just so I can have them at shows for people that want, I don't want to say inexpensive because people always hear inexpensive and think that I don't care about the animals, but it's not a $200 snake. You know, it's, it's someone's first snake. It would be great for someone's first snake because they can set it up easily, care for it easily and not break the bank trying to get one. Same, I mean, you sell corn snakes. It's the same kind of deal. It's not that they're inexpensive. It's just they don't cost. I mean, you know, it's not they're, not they're not a disposable animal, but they're an affordable animal for somebody to try out for the first time. And I think corn snakes, the problem that you face with corn snakes is they're a great snake at a year old. Yeah. You know, it's that baby size that you're like, all right, whatever you put it in, be very careful. They're really awesome at getting out of stuff. Like, please, guys. I can't say this enough and I have to like badger people with it. And it still happens, man. Like literally the same person that I spent an hour telling them that it happens. And I try to tell them the perfect yeah. enclosure and everything like that. One to me for, for baby corn of all snakes, a lockable Rubbermaid clip, a tub is like the best one for a baby. Cause you can drill very small holes in it for air and it locks down. They can't get out. Because no matter how much someone thinks their tank is secure, there's always somewhat of a gap somewhere at the top, and they can fit through almost anything. 
you don't you don't close it all the way because it's always a kid who has them and you know they can mess up in any which way and well my daughter wants hers in her room but i've got it in a, it's in quarantine right now in a rack but i had to put a piece of paper under the tub just so the tub would come all the way up to the top because i didn't want to leave any gap and i was like it's probably going to be in here for like a year until it's big enough to go in a cage for your room i was like it's it's just that's how they are they're, they're so small yeah, that's why we're we're thinking of like putting together starter kits, you know, something at least decent to where it's completely inescapable. But, you know, still people will go to somewhere else and buy a tank. Uh, well, yeah, I, which that literally was, happened last weekend. <laughs> I, remember, I heard the story and, that, and that's that was one of my hardest parts when I worked at like PetSmart. Like I was not an upsell kind of guy when it came to selling stuff for like especially reptiles. I'm like, look, you can use this, this. And then go to Home Depot or go to Lowe's. And you need to, like, I, I know how to do stuff on a budget and get just what you need. Like, I've never sold anybody the snake kit at PetSmart. Yeah, you know? it's like it's like doing right by the by the customer, not by yourself. I mean, just I know that people are on a budget. And listen, if you don't have the money to take care for a snake, I don't want you to buy a snake. But yeah. then again, I understand. A lot we've of us, yeah, we've yeah, all yeah, there. we're all trying to do it as cheap as possible. Let's be honest, as cheap as possible, so we're able to, I don't know, do this at a larger scale, or at least just be able to keep them in general. Oh, it would be hard to spend two hundred dollars each setup. It's I keep weird. racks instead of big cages for a lot of stuff because I can fit more snakes in a rack. Yeah. And maybe we'll go. Well, you're just doing it for money. No, I'm doing it because I love snakes and I want more of them. <laughs> like I, I want more snakes. It's easiest that way. Like. And I'm not knocking anybody who does the big elaborate setups. I wish that I had the patience to do some of those like awesome elaborate setups, even some of those bioactive things. But I mean, I have Samboas. There's no bioactive for a Samboa. <laughs> hey man, they have those desert, uh, they have desert isopods now and springtails and stuff like that. Yeah. See, that's, that's just too much. It's easy for me to just dump out Aspen and throw more Aspen in and move on. Yeah. See, that's what, that's where one of those, you know, when I was younger, I'd be one of those that would argue, well, this is how you should do it. Like, there's a million ways you can keep snakes. And who knows if any of us are doing it the right way. Mm -hmm. But it's working. Yeah, that's something. That, I mean, I always want to. I want to further our keeping and stuff like that. And I want to, you know, I don't want to just do things how they've always been done. But at the same time, I don't want to break anything <laughs> you know well, like it works and i've done I've, I've bought better racks i bought better heating elements and i bought better thermostats and, I, and i've upped the equipment for how i'm going to keep them you know for a long long time i kept things in random tubs and glass cages and anything i had and i used those cheap 30 dollars thermostats i mean at one point i had like 15 of those things running at one time the ones that everybody goes hey it'll burn your house down I'm like, i did it for 15 years but you know I reached a point now where I've, I've got to upgrade stuff. Things need to get better. If, even if I'm going to keep it this way, I'm going to keep it this way the best I can. There's also levels to tub keeping. You know, there's there are herp stats instead of the basic thermostats. And, you know, there's, there's always different levels too. I mean, some people start off with melamine racks or you have yeah. that those uh those plastic shelving units from home depot that you run oh, yeah. heat tape on i just, i know i had one of those when i first started so see my thing was i was i built stuff and i uh 
my first boa cages were massive. I mean, they were made out of three quarter inch plywood all the way around. They were five foot long, two foot deep, two foot tall, massive. And when I finally got rid of those things and bought four foot PVC cages, oh my God, my life got easier. I mean, they clean so much easier. I can pick one up and move it. Uh, it's just, and then when I finally, instead of homemade racks, I bought the pre-made racks. So like, this is so much easier too. So it's, but I don't knock anybody for the way they're keeping their, that stuff. It's, it's, you do it the best you can, or you do it the way you want to. It's, it's your animals. I mean, we're in reality, we're like, uh, uh, Owen and I said, we're keeping snakes in boxes, you know, no matter what your box looks like, it's a snake in a box. So do and you're seeing, you you're seeing a bunch of people go back to things like wood cages and building their own cages. And it's, it's weird to watch the hobby go up and down. It's just these different things you see people do. I mean, but that's one thing I will say about ball pythons as much as the animal themselves, I'm not impressed with them because they exist. All of this stuff exists. You know, these racks, the thermosets, they all exist because there was money to be made. And let's be honest, it was in ball pythons. Mm -hmm. Those those snakes moved our our hobby forward more than anything else. Um, But I am glad to see more people getting into other stuff now. And I think it's interesting because we're seeing, I think we're seeing the naturalistic setups and everything like that because of that shift that we're talking about, because yeah. ball pythons do great in tubs, all that other stuff. But now that we are getting out of doing the most efficient thing for the most amount of money and putting as many snakes in one place, you're seeing people have a Sanzinia in a giant yeah. enclosure with plants would- in it and stuff. I would do that in an instant. I've always said that I've always said I wanted an emerald tree. I would get a, a nice, really nice display for an emerald tree boa. And I would, but I think I'd, I'd much rather have Sanzinia. But the problem is I want green ones. I don't want the yellow ones, I want mandarins. I want green. And it would go in my living room. It'd be the one snake in, that's not in my snake room. It'd be smack dab right next to my TV just so I could look at it when I walk home every day and go, oh my God, I own this. Is that Katie approved or what? I don't care. I'm not asking. It's gonna, <laughs> if I get a Sanzinia, it's going in the living room. <laughs> look, I'll, I'll get cage made furniture quality, but it's going in there. That's, and if she allows you to spend the twenty five hundred or whatever it will cost to get you your green yeah. Sanzinia. Oh god! What kills me is if you go to the go to Europe, they're everywhere. Ooh. Like Europe has tons of green ones and no mandarins. We all have all the mandarin ones and no green ones. I'm like someone just ship them over, just get one big shipment. But you could shift the whole market with like 20 animals. That would just completely, oh yeah, completely change things. The, I mean, they're all like I said when I worked at the zoo and I saw them on the list of things I could get. I was like, yep, we're getting those. I didn't have a space for them. Had no reason to get them, but I was like, we need those. So just every day I can walk into the snake building and go, oh, those are awesome. And I did. I'd walk in every morning and go, those are awesome. Because they got this big black eyes. Oh, they're just I love those snakes. Yeah. Is that is that like your one um besides maybe Emerald Tree Bow? Is that is that your one like animal that you wish you could have? Yes. Yeah. I Emeralds were I was never a green tree. I didn't like the, the skinny necks, the big head. Like that was not a thing for me. It's one thing I like Amazon's don't do anything for me. I always loved emeralds because of that like bulldog looking face to them, you know. And they just cooled up and they, st- they looked like they could mess you up just sitting there. 
And then I saw Sanzinia and I was like, oh man, those massive heads, those dark black eyes, that awesome green camouflage body. I was like, that's an amazing snake. And so I don't think they're, they're not nearly as arboreal, at least my experience with them, they're not nearly as arboreal as like an emerald. Um, <clears throat> and they don't do that. Which whole- is good. They're not just going to like perch in one spot yeah. constantly. But uh, I want them. I, I've seen people that have them and I've talked to some people that have them. And, and at some point I'll own one. I'm just a matter of how much money I'm willing to spend. Well, hopefully you got people who are interested in them again and maybe they'll be a little bit more active in breeding them and well, I'm hoping maybe just get some more out there. It's shut back down, but I'm hoping that Madagascar being open for a little bit help the market. So I'm hoping we'll see that in a couple of years that the imports start turning into more babies. Or I wonder if I'm just under a fake impression because just like Matt has them and some people that we've seen in our, like around here have them. So maybe not a lot of people have them, but it seems like uh, they're in capable hands. I hope so. I mean, cause this is, like I said, they're just a cool, and Madagascar in general has cool looking snakes. You know, I had giant Madagascar hog noses when I was at the zoo. And those are a neat snake. I know Owen has them. They're Riley just snake. hatched out uh, USC oh, right. Mad hogs. The, I've never seen a snake eat faster than a Madagascan hog nose. We had four of them. I had them in a rack system when I'd feed them. I'd feed the top one, get down to the fourth one, come back up. The top one was already done and ready for another mouse. Um, but they, they're a cool snake, and, you can, and they're fairly calm. You can handle them. Uh, and they've got that cool, like if you like if you like Pichiophis and you like that, the way the skin feels, they have that that rough skin that just feels awesome. Yeah. yeah they, they eat kind of like a dry mark on. Yeah. I mean, they, yeah, there's no wrapping. They, they just go, they just start eating. Yeah. You know, all like, like a regular hog nose too, you know, um, regular hog nose will never wrap. Those things just start eating right away. Yeah. Which is interesting. I will, I will say, <laughs> so the Conroe show, I saw two ladies there that got bit by hog noses. Um, I will tell you more pictures of what happens when you get bit by a hog nose need to be on the internet. Mm-hmm. Um, the one girl, it bit her arm and it swole from the fingertips all the way up to her shoulder was swollen. Holy shit. And then she had these giant boils that formed on her arm that started to burst and bust open. And just, it looked God awful. And it was, it was swollen like twice the size. The woman that got bit on the hand, her hand swelled all the way up to her elbow was swollen about twice the size it should have been um that's like a water moccasin bite let's be honest well and, and the problem is at one point i thought about you know what i'll do hog noses they're small they're colorful they'd be a great first pet and then i see that and i'm like i don't know how i'd feel if a small kid got bit by one of those and did serious damage because so many people keep going they're mildly venomous I'm like well they're only mildly venomous if you're mildly allergic to it like they're not mildly venomous if you're allergic, that's like people that get stung by bees and you watch, they get these giant boils on the arm from a bee. Whereas someone else might get stung. It just turns red a little bit. It's the same issue. And so I just, I, I think there needs to be a little more respect paid to mildly venomous snakes. Yeah. I guess if you just want to, if you want to take that chance, <laughs> but that's, that's the scary thing though, is they're on tons of tables. at shows and being family, sold as non-venomous. Yeah. Yeah. And a family buys one for their kid because, it wasn't venomous. It was. It didn't have red tape around it telling them that it was venomous. And then the kid bit. And so I just that that kind of stuff scares me. Yeah, that could come back on our hobby a hundred percent. And and that and that, I guess that's where I'm at now because I, I worry about the hobby. I 
my wife and I talked about my parents were moving soon. We don't know where to. And we're talking about, well, when they move, maybe we'll move to wherever they go. And then I was like, well, I can't live in Georgia. I can't live in Tennessee. I can't live like <laughs> I got to pick which state I can go live in where I won't ever have to deal with someone trying to take away snakes from me. Mm-hmm. You know, and then if I if I leave, I got to be careful because I've got to take Louisiana pine snakes with me. So like those are going to cross state lines. So it's I don't know. I, I worry about a lot of that kind of stuff. Um, I'm glad things like U.S. Arc exist. Yeah, it is something to where. I mean, yeah, that was our like one decision. That's why I moved from Texas to Pennsylvania, because you go from like the two most relaxed states you can go to. Um, yeah. I mean, there's others, but. Yeah, something that you have to consider as a snake person, or well, and I, I, I don't want to be like a a lame person, or I don't know, but the, the hognose thing just sketches me out a little bit too. Yeah, what in Texas? Can't you only own like two hognoses or something? Isn't, it, isn't there a limit on hognoses in Texas? Uh, if you did, I had the two. <laughs> Not that I know of. Because they were they were native, and I thought there was some sort of limit on them. Because I remember someone telling me one once, I was like, "That's weird." Because it's, it's a hog nose. Yeah, I don't know. Then, but I still get. I Georgia kills me on all their their laws. Like the corn snake law, I think is crazy. Yeah, yeah. I mean, here in PA, you can't have a you can't have like copperheads. You can have a monocle cobra, but. Or maybe I guess if you get the if you get the license, you can have two copperheads. I just I'm always amazed at different animal laws. Uh, George always had the one where you can't own Quaker parrots, little Quakers, because uh, they could live in the wild if they got loose. I'm like, well, so do cats. I was like, but no one's getting rid of cats. That was a weird way to write a law. Yeah, but, that would be that would be fun, huh? If we just banned cats, I would love it. <laughs> I, I hate look I, i'm all for if you want to own a cat inside i tell people all the time inside cats have at it which but is just, rare to be honest well and everybody goes well they kill all the rats and birds and everything i was like yeah that's exactly. not a good thing that's not a good thing and like and they kill stuff for fun they're not killing like we'll just bring it back and go hey look what i killed i'm like and if you think about it basically they're small serial killers and if they were people they would be in prison but because they're cute and furry we're like Kill whatever you want. Have at it. Yeah, like giant assholes. Who does that? But that's plenty of food. I mean, there's a bowl of food sitting outside. The 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 human gives you food all day long, but you'll come by and like dead dove. They just pulled it, they grabbed a dove. They didn't eat the dove, it's just a dead dove sitting on the carport. And I'm like, the hell? But to, to the person that owns it, it's doing a good job. It's getting rid of the animals that we don't want. I'm like, well, if you don't want those animals, they move away from where they live. Yeah, good luck. I mean, the Arctic Circle doesn't have snakes. Go go there. <laughs> but there are those people who are like, there's a squirrel outside. I got to kill it. That's it. That's that's what I always kill. Like, I'm... It's my backyard. I would say the only thing I usually kill in the house of it is, the, is, is roaches. I can't I can't do it. But they breed about a bajillion at a time. But like spiders, I'll pick up spiders, put them outside. Because I, I have that mentality of... I don't want someone to do the same thing to a snake. I would like for them to to leave the snake alone. So part of my mind has to go, all right, look, you have the ability to move this spider and put it outside, put it outside. Um, just, I don't know. It's especially, I mean, you, you live in the South, you know how it is. It's, is the, there's a mentality of you can do whatever you want. Cause you want to do it. Dude, when I first, when I first moved to Alabama and I went out at night 
and those giant fucking cockroaches went like between oh, my geez. legs when I was walking. I almost, I swear, like my skin just fell off. Huge, huge. <laughs> and there's so many of them. And it was just, it was just like a 98 degree humid night. And they're all just all over the place. Oh, uh, we, uh, the apartment I lived in in college, you could walk, yeah, the little bushes right outside the building, like right outside your doors. You could walk out at night and hear just all over the place running all through those bushes. And like, finally, we told our landlord, like, you have to cut those down. He's like, cockroaches don't live in trees. That's where they live. They're in, like, they're in the trees. <laughs> but I guess enough people finally complain. They cut them down. But I mean, they were full of them. It would just gross you out to hear them. But yeah, it's, well, I can't do cockroaches. How was your first experience with fire ants when you moved down there? Oh, that is, yeah, that is something that I discovered down there. But it's, uh, Texas actually seemed to have a lot more than. Yeah. I just, I'm always, Alabama. it always cracks me up, people from the north, because they, they talk about, people will complain about ants here or there. I'm like, you don't have fire ants. Stop it. I was like, yeah, take- we would get like the little black ants that come into your house seasonally and they would piss you off. But we, we have fire ants. They kill things. Like, it's, like, I have to be careful with my tortoise yard because during the winter, They'll come in and they'll build. They'll come into the barn and build their ant bed to heat our ant bed. I'm like, things you cut my tortoises if I don't try and get rid of them. Yeah, in Texas, you'd see like the mounds all over the place or from fire ants, and they would just, yeah, they're they're savages. Yeah, they, and then they can. I mean, a lot of kids. I had the story. Like, you know, I sat on a stump when I was like four. And the stump was full of ants, and they had to like just basically tear off all my clothes, throw me in a bathtub, and try and get them all off of me. Um, yeah, they suck. And herping, I mean, you're gonna get fucking. Oh yeah, stung. you're gonna your hand is gonna accidentally get into a. Well, and what's funny is how, pile of them. how many people in the south don't realize that they're not native because they're yeah. they're they're part of our life. They're everywhere. Everybody's you've been used to them since birth. But I'm like, they're not even from here. I'll say, <laughs> but they they are here now. Yeah. Yeah, it's uh, yeah. You kind of take advantage as how, or maybe that's not the right word. There's just so much less uh, wildlife and bugs to contend with when you're up here. Yeah, y'all have that whole thing called winter. Yeah, yeah, that gets. I don't, I, I don't know what that is. It, it'd be nice, except for the snow. I can't do snow. I can't. I'm not waking up to shovel something. It's not happening. Yeah, Melissa can't do it either. Even though it snowed like once last year, she can't do it. I wondered how that was going to go with her moving up there. Because, I mean, <laughs> Louisiana, Texas, not known for their their snowy winters. Yeah, no. And that's that. those are those places where it snows and then you get off of school. Like, well, even if the forecast funny. says snow. I love it. But yeah. you know what's funny is people always complain. You always hear the northerners go, y'all can't handle snow. I was like, come down here in the summer. Like coming out in 110 degrees with 80% humidity. Yeah, like our our schools go down when it's over like 100 degrees. They're like, no, no practice today, no going outside, nothing. In Texas, it's like 110 every day. Yeah, that's a normal summer day. I say summer. It it lasts from like March to October, but (laughs) it's... And then it's also like you would think you would find a lot of snakes and stuff, but... There's such a large part of the season where it's too hot and everything's yeah. like, go fuck yourself. I'm not. Yeah, it's all hidden underground or underneath something. You're not going to find it out and about. Yeah. yeah. You think, oh man, it's not cold. There's going to be reptiles. It's like, yeah, but it's 110 degrees. You're not going to find anything. 
Like life is not meant for this. I couldn't imagine. I've never gone. I want to go herping in West Texas, but I couldn't imagine being in West Texas when it's like 110 and you're just seeing like the heat come off the ground and, you know, it looks like a scene out of a Western. <laughs> yeah. Te- uh, Texas is kind of brutal when it gets hot and, uh, and dry. Well, because out there there's nothing. I've just, I've just always wanted to go to West Texas, just, just where there's nothing. And you're like, actually like lifting rocks and finding like stuff out I gotta do it at some point. Scorpions. Yeah, that would suck. <laughs> That's a, they're just like new things that want to kill you. Yeah. It's fun. E- everything bites. Yeah. But. but anyway, man, we did two hours. We did. Yeah. Thank you for uh, for coming on. No, I enjoyed it. I, look, I'm looking forward. Tenley's my. I know I keep saying it like 50 times a day, but I need that trip so bad. <laughs> I need I need to be around reptile people so that I don't seem crazy when I talk about buying a snake for five hundred dollars. That will be like, what are you talking about, child? Get out of here! I'm buying yeah. a snake for like three thousand dollars. Yeah, I, not me. <laughs> you know, I I sell a snake to someone for four hundred bucks, and I tell somebody that's a non reptile person, they go, "Whoa, four hundred bucks! You can make a killing off snakes." I was like, "No, no, you can't." <laughs> it's hard <laughs> to explain. Like that 400 bucks doesn't exist after I buy rodents and I bought another snake because I sold a snake. That's what I, I always wonder like what would happen if we didn't buy more snakes? Would we actually make money? Yeah, but then it wouldn't be as much fun. <laughs> yeah. I, mean, I, I can't not buy snakes. Like, like right now, with a, I've got a thousand dollars just waiting for Tenley and I'll see things pop up online. And I'm like, I could get that, but I was like, no, I'm going to Tenley. I'm going to wait and see what's there. Because there's gonna be something that that you don't expect. Oh yeah, I'm I'm I would be pissed if I showed up didn't have the money. I'm like, oh, I had the money a week ago. Which, by the way, you were asking week two and a half weeks. It's two and a half weeks away. Two and a half weeks. Is it uh, October? What's the date exactly? Eleventh, twelfth. If my phone would pop up, I could tell you. Um, October twelfth and thirteenth. But we're getting there on Thursday, which is the tenth. Oh, so you guys are going a day early as well. I got a cousin that lives up there, so we're going to go eat with him. And then I told Katie on Friday I would uh, I would go do a couple of Chicago things with her so she can enjoy Chicago. You're going to like do the pizza and the Sears Tower, whatever that stuff is? I don't know what we're going to do, but I told her I've got a vendor badge, so I will be at the show at least Friday afternoon looking at everybody set up and seeing what they have on their tables. Yes, because snakes will be gone Friday. Like... People will buy snakes before the show opens. Yeah, so that was, I, I want to be there when it gets on tables. Yes. See, Ryan says go to the shed aquarium. I want to go to the shed, but it's expensive. It's also you need a you need a full day. Yeah, you can't appreciate it in like a a half day or anything like that. Because I wanted to do the shed, and I think there's like two zoos up there, and I wanted to go to uh, was it the Chicago uh, Reptile House or whatever. Um, we can park zoo and. But you don't have the time because. Saturday and Sunday will be all day at the show. And then Friday, like I said, I want to be there. Yeah, Melissa's like, yeah, well, let's go into the city. I'm like, you don't understand how far away that is. It's not convenient at all. Yeah. See, I've, I've got to drive into the city or closer to the city, at least on Thursday, to go eat dinner. And then I'll probably, be able, I mean. And you guys are driving all the way up, aren't you? Yeah, we're going to leave on Wednesday, like right after school, drive as far as we can, spend the night somewhere, and then finish the rest on Thursday morning. 
and then leave on Sunday night, drive as far as we can Sunday, and finish the rest on Monday, and then go to school and work on Tuesday. It'll be worth it. That'll that'll be a rough week back, but it'll be worth it. Yeah, it's gonna be awesome. I'm I'm looking forward to it. I can't wait. And if anyone wants to get in touch with you, where can they find you? Uh, Simply Serpents on Facebook or Simply underscore Serpents on Instagram. Or if you want to shoot me an email, it's simply serpents at hotmail.com because I'm one of the weird people that still use Hotmail because <laughs> I've had Throwbacks. it. For, I've had it for years and it's not going anywhere. And someone owns simply serpents at Gmail, so I can't get it. Um, but yeah, Facebook is the easiest way. Simply serpents on Facebook. You can just find me on there and uh, shoot me a message. I've got snakes available. I've got a few. A few if anybody buy, wants to buy a boa and put money Tenley in my money. Yeah, I, just, I, need, <laughs> I need money for Tinley. So I got like six snakes left, and then I get more money for Tinley. But there yeah, Facebook's the easiest way. Sweet. As for us or me at the moment, Port City Pythons, PortCityPythons.com, Port City Pythons, Instagram, YouTube, all that good stuff. You're listening to From the Ground Up podcast. You know what? I never ask people, but if you could leave a reading, reading, a rating and review, that would be sweet because I don't think we get those that often, and I think they do things. So that would be cool. I this is uh probably asked in the beginning, but hopefully you guys made it this far. James, thank you so much for being here. Yep, thank you. And for everyone else, we will catch you next week.